millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Radio Westeros, episode 33, The Wolf and the Lion. Spoilers all books! Hello, and welcome to another episode of Radio Westeros. I'm Lady Guinevere in Boston, and as always, I'm joined by Yoke Boy in England. Hello there, listeners. We are very happy to be bringing you the first instalment of our analysis of The War of the Five Kings. What started out as a single episode grew to include episodes on Joffrey and Renly and has now turned into a sprawling three-part analysis here of the war that forms the backbone of the action in A Song of Ice and Fire. Understanding the dynamics of this war is essential to having a grounding in so many of the story's plots and characters, and so we will be going in depth and detail here. Yeah, in this first episode, we'll start with the backstory of the war and bring us through its prologue and opening chapters. We'll begin by reviewing the five kings, the military commanders, and other major players, and then we'll consider the origins of the conflict. And of course, we can't discuss every single character, but we'll try to hit the highlights, and then the final segment today will be a complete analysis of the first stage of the war, when House Stark and House Lannister face off in the Riverlands. Throughout it all, we'll endeavour to place all the events of the war in chronological order where possible to better give you listeners a sense of how things were unfolding in various locations. And so, with our usual touches, like short readings and quotes, and a couple of adverts from Westeros, that'll be the episode today. And before we get started, we just want to say thanks to all of you listeners who support us in one way or another. Whether you're recommending us to your friends, leaving comments, reviews on iTunes and YouTube, upvoting us on Reddit, sending us emails or messages on social media, please know how much we appreciate it all. Yeah, we really do, and while we try really hard to reply to your messages, however we get them, we do get a lot of them, and sometimes we just can't reply to each and every one, but we do want you all to know that we read and appreciate them. Yes, so thank you all for that. And many of you know that we have a Patreon campaign. Patrons provide financial support that allows us to keep Radio Westeros going, as well as unlocking bonus features that many of our listeners have enjoyed, such as the Quiz of Ice and Fire series that we've been doing. So we want to thank all of our patrons, including our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, our Dragonsteel patrons, John Weirgarian and Peter, and our Pale as Milk Glass patrons, 
Rosa, Rory, Ashley, Laura, Sister Winter, and Harry Krishna. And our Flaming Lightbringer, Dragonsteel, and Pale as Milk Glass patrons not only get shoutouts at the beginning of each episode, but they're all invited to join us in a quarterly video hangout where we talk Radio Westeros, A Song of Ice and Fire, and all kinds of other things. To find out how you can earn privileges like hangouts, early access to episodes, shoutouts, and patron-exclusive episodes, such as the one we have available now on Varamir and Skin Changing, visit us at patreon.com slash radioestros to check out our campaign. And now, it's time to get going with The War of the Five Kings. All sorts of people are calling themselves kings these days. Okay, and before we get into the particulars of the War of the Five Kings and its origins, it's important to talk about who the kings, major theatre commanders and principal actors in the war were. And so we'll start with a segment on the kings themselves. And much of the material in this segment was contributed by our friend Brendan Beefish from the Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog, who has also acted as a general consultant for us in this episode. So many thanks to him for that and be sure to check out his blog. And now let's talk about the five kings, their strengths and weaknesses and what distinguishes them. Yeah, there's a great diversity of backgrounds between the five kings as battle commanders that really bears discussing. And we're going to include at least one commander who wasn't a king in this part of the discussion, because two of the kings hardly participated in the war directly. And we're speaking, of course, of Joffrey Baratheon and Balon Greyjoy, who both remain in the background, though for very different reasons. Yeah, that's right. They both remained behind while proxy commanders fought their battles. And so we'll include Tywin Lannister here, while the various Greyjoys will come up in our next segment. And yet there's a great diversity of experience between the various kings. It's probably notable, however, that the two kings with the least experience at warfare see the most success in their efforts. Joffrey, through his use of a proxy commander, and Rob, through the benefit of discipline and superior training. So why don't we look at those two first, starting with Rob. He is a boy no longer. He is sixteen now, a man grown. War had melted all the softness from his face and left him hard and lean. Okay, and we've covered Rob Stark recently in two episodes, so we'll just quickly review his background and then focus on his tactics. Rob learned warfare as heir of Winterfell from an early age. He was trained in this mostly by his father Ned, who was an able battle commander himself, and also by men like Roderick and Jury Cassell in the training yard and Maester Lewin in the classroom. Along with his half-brother Jon Snow, he was trained in all the martial arts, sword and lance, horsemanship, and undoubtedly tactics and strategy. Yeah, we have a quote from Jon Snow referencing that training. 
Rob is a stronger lance than I am, but I'm the better sword, and Holland says I sit a horse as well as anyone in the castle. As far as battle strategy goes, we see some of Rob's father's influences early on, as he passes through a lot of what-would-Ned-do moments, but his youth is also evident in his bravery, such that at times it almost seems like the latter is a compensation for the former. Overall, his leadership style is to lead from the front, and he always seems to put himself in the highest amount of danger. He inspires his troops by example, and as we said, compensates for youth with bravery. He also delegates a number of major tasks to subordinate commanders, notably Roose Bolton and Edmure Tully. And the results of this are mixed to bad. Yeah, as it turns out, and as we'll see when we get into the real analysis of the war, Roose Bolton sacrificed pro-Stark loyalists at the Green Fork and later Duskendale, but he took Harrenhal through cunning. On the other hand, Edmure Tully's command of the Riverlands host, while seemingly a success in some areas, leads to problems later on, and we'll discuss that in depth in a later section as well. One basic principle we see put to good use in Rob's command is that the best defence is a good offence. He seems to be always on the attack, and in fact is never on defence in a single battle. This is seen best in his ability as a manoeuvre commander. He uses swift-moving soldiers to mitigate disadvantage in numbers as seen at the Whispering Wood and Oxcross, which, as an aside, works to his disadvantage at the crag where he opts for assault over a drawn-out siege and ends up getting wounded in the battle and comforted by Jane Westerling. Yeah, that's a discussion for another place, but it's also a great example of Rob's youth coming into play in his decision-making. One thing he does well is utilize terrain to cover or conceal movement, as we'll see in the Battle of Whispering Wood. He also uses military deception to disorient the enemy and conceal his true aims. Right, as in the deception at the Green Fork, and later when Tywin, Cat, and Renly all think Rob will march to Harrenhal. Instead, he heads west to engage Stafford Lannister's host, a completely unexpected and unorthodox manoeuvre. In fact, had that tactic worked out as planned, the future of Westeros might have looked very different indeed. Now, as for the composition of Rob's army, he has the combined armies of the Riverlands and the North at his back at the beginning of A Clash of Kings. Let's break it down to see how many men that was likely to be. Okay, so we know that as far as the Northmen go, 12,000 answered the call at Winterfell. This is from a Bran point of view in A Game of Thrones. How many is it now? Bran asked Maester Lewin as Lord Karstark and his sons rode through the gates in the outer wall. 12,000 men, or near enough, as makes no matter. How many knights? 300, perhaps four, among 3,000 armored lances who are not knights. And of course, more join them along the King's Road and at Moat Caelin. Total northern strength seems to be around 20,000 Northmen by the time they reach the Twins. If you were strong enough to climb your own battlements, Lord Frey, you would see that my son has 20,000 men outside your walls. And while Cat may have been exaggerating slightly for effect, that number really seems to hold when we come to talking about the phrase and the force dispersion prior to the Battle of the Green Fork. 
The Freys are commonly held to have around 4,000 men, as we see from Cat's point of view in A Game of Thrones. Walder Frey, Lord of the Crossing, had assembled a force of near 4,000 men at his castles on the Green Fork. That's right, but after securing Walder Frey's alliance, Rob divides his force into two major forces, with a third, smaller force of 800 men composed of half Freys and half Northmen under the command of Helmund Tallhart, left to defend the crossing. Rob himself takes command of a force of 4,500 or so cavalry, about nine-tenths of his horse, cross-country into the Riverlands, leaving Roose Bolton in command of the bulk of the Northern Army, about 17,000 men, mostly infantry, with likely a small company of 500 or so mounted knights. And it's following the addition of the phrase that Rob begins to truly grow his army as more and more rivermen join him. Jason Malister comes down from Seaguard, and Mark Piper swings around from the west to join him. By the time he reaches Riverrun, having defeated Jamie Lannister, he has an army of 6,000, and in lifting the siege, he gains the allegiance of the rest of the men of the Riverlands, upwards of 20,000 men, if the levy could be held together. Yeah, but we know it doesn't. By the time of Cat's audience with Renly, we know that the levy has shrunk, both from casualties and from Edmure, allowing men to return to their farms and holdfasts. Here's a quote. I'm told your son crossed the neck with 20,000 swords at his back, Renly went on. Now that the lords of the Trident are with him, perhaps he commands 40,000. No, she thought, not near so many. We have lost men in battle, and others to the harvest. And in fact, by a clash of kings, as Rob moves west with a small strike force and leaves his subordinate commanders Roose Bolton and Edmure Tully in charge at River Run and east of the Green Fork, his total army is estimated to be under 30,000, which would be further decimated by Roose Bolton's and Walder Frey's acts of treachery. By the end of the war, Rob's reputation as a brilliant young tactician who outfoxed Tywin Lannister would be in tatters, and his army, that once numbered nearly 40,000, reduced to a mere fraction of that number. Overall, though, in spite of missteps and treachery in his ranks, Rob Stark seemed to embody the same northern pragmatism as his father, coupled with a quick and nimble mind that allowed him to frequently see outside of the box. In fact, Rob, for the brief months of his campaign, was able to stand shoulder to shoulder with men like Brynden Tully and Tywin Lannister as a commander, something that cannot be said of his counterpart in King's Landing, with whom there is very little comparison. Cersei's son needs to be taken in hand before he ruins us all. Well, of course, that's true. There is very little comparison between Rob and Joffrey. And there's also very little to be said about Joffrey Baratheon as a military commander. So we'll limit our review of him to a few character points. As many of you know, we've also covered Joffrey recently. So please check out that episode if you haven't done so. Yeah, we did our best to get deep inside the mind of Joffrey Baratheon there. We talked about the Purple Wedding and other things. But we also talked a lot about things that are relevant here. For instance, that due to his early male influences in Robert, Tywin and Jaime, 
all celebrated soldiers and commanders, Joffrey may have seen himself as a sort of natural in that area. His arrogance and bragging about his abilities, most notably about how he would personally engage and defeat Rob Stark, and even his uncle Stannis, seemed to indicate this. But the sad truth is that Joffrey never truly showed any martial aptitude, from his early reluctance to engage Rob in the training yard at Winterfell, cloaked in arrogant mockery, to his humiliation at the hands of Arya on the Trident, to the fact that he keeps forgetting to close his visor the one time he sees military action. Joffrey doesn't really seem to display the same talents that his male family members are noted to have shown at a similar age. Well, we think... If given the choice, he would like to lead from the front, between his demonstrated arrogance and recklessness and his apparent admiration for his father's accomplishments. But as he utterly lacks leadership and military acumen, such a choice would have been a disaster, no doubt. As it is, his mother wouldn't allow it. During the Blackwater, she places him under close guard and has him removed when things get truly dangerous, seriously impacting the morale of the Lannister soldiers, as we'll discuss. Yeah, he did seem to try to assert himself by taking temporary command of the trebuchets, possibly due to his long-standing antagonism of his uncle Tyrion, who was in command of the defences, until Cersei had him pulled back. But aside from that occasion, he seemed basically content to allow his experienced and efficient grandfather to fight his battles while he busied himself torturing cats, young girls, and small folk in King's Landing. It felt a Tywin to rule this realm when he was no more than 20. He bore that heavy burden for 20 years and all it earned him was a Mad King's envy. So now let's take a brief look at Lord Tywin Lannister, who, as his grandson's hand, is also his principal military commander. And of course, we also have an episode on Tywin, where we do a deep dive into his personal military and political history. Tywin is an experienced commander who's seen action in multiple wars, starting with the War of the Nine Penny Kings, where he served as a knight while his uncle Jason commanded the main host. It's said that he and his Westermen became battle-hardened by their experiences fighting in the Stepstones, and after the war, he had the honor of knighting the young prince and future King Aerys II Targaryen. And back from the war, young Tywin was instrumental in crushing the Rain Tarbeck Rebellion in the Westerlands when he led Lannister soldiers against those rebellious houses, resulting in the utter destruction of Houses Rain and Tarbeck by means that are at once utterly absolute and breathtakingly cold and cruel. During Robert's rebellion, he came late to Robert's aid, and seems to have compensated by sacking King's Landing and massacring the young Targaryen heirs, another example of his coldness and absolutism. Yeah, let's take a moment to talk about those qualities of his leadership. Over and over again, Tywin shows himself willing to supersede the norms of warfare to achieve a positive end state. 
When he burned Tarbeck Hall after taking it and executed Tarbeck prisoners who had surrendered to him, including Lord Tarbeck's three-year-old son, who was allegedly thrown down a well by Sir Amory Lorch, he most certainly did exceed the acceptable limits of warfare, as he did when he drowned all the reigns who were barricaded inside their fortress at Castamere instead of besieging them. And as we mentioned, he treacherously sacked King's Landing after Ares opened the gates to him, and according to Oberyn, Tywin ordered the rape and murder of Elia Martell during the sack of King's Landing in response to the slight of her match to Rhaegar over Tywin's proposed match of Cersei to Rhaegar. The murder of Elia's children he justified to Tyrion, saying... We had come late to Robert's cause. It was necessary to demonstrate our loyalty. When I lay those bodies before the throne, no man could doubt that we had forsaken House Targaryen forever. And Robert's relief was palpable. As stupid as he was, even he knew that Rhaegar's children had to die if his throne was ever to be secure. Okay, and of course, Gregor Clegane and Amory Lorch were both instrumental in the sack and the murders at King's Landing. And then in A Game of Thrones, he dispatches both into the Riverlands after Tyrion's arrest by Catelyn to rape and pillage in order to draw Ned Stark out of King's Landing so as to capture him and exchange him for Tyrion. Following Rob's march south and early victories, they would continue to burn and rape across the Riverlands in a mass chevauchee meant to force Rob Stark to confront Tywin in battle. So clearly, for Tywin Lannister, small folks' lives and properties, and even nobly born men, women and children, mean nothing when in pursuit of a specific goal. This is a truly dangerous man, and as we'll see, he doesn't take any unnecessary risks with his own person. Like Stannis Baratheon, he commands his army from the rear. He's a smart tactician that plays against expectations of opponents, like when he had siege engines constructed and hurled stones at Tarbeck Hall instead of besieging it, killing Ellen Tarbeck and leading to their surrender and the complete destruction of the hall. And he also proved himself able to redirect his forces to meet new threats when he quickly reorganized his superior army to repel a surprise cavalry attack by Roger Rain outside Tarbeck Hall. At the outset of the War of the Five Kings, he assembled a force of 35,000 men, and more on that later. He divided that force with 15,000 under the command of Jaime and 20,000 under his own direct command. While he himself only lost maybe a thousand at the Green Fork, at least two-thirds of Jaime's army would be destroyed at Riverrun. The survivors would flee back to Oxcross, where Tywin would order a new army to be assembled under the command of Stafford Lannister. This is the army that would in turn be destroyed by Rob Stark at the Battle of Oxcross. So, the 19,000 or so that Tywin directly commands take heavy losses at the Battle of the Stone Mill, at which point things seem to be going pretty poorly for the fabled commander. But the surviving Lannisters are able to regroup, and thanks to Stannis Baratheon's intervention at Storm's End, join with the Reach host at Bitterbridge. 
The total army size under Tywin's command for the Battle of the Blackwater is 60 to 70,000 combined Westermen and Reachmen. And expect a lot more to be said on that battle and Tywin's tactics there as we move through this coverage. I have felt from the beginning that Stannis was a greater danger than all the others combined. Now, we've mentioned Stannis Baratheon a couple of times. He is the commander that Tywin initially saw as the most potent threat. And indeed, the Blackwater would prove the truth of that, where, but for the twist of fate, that the death of Renly in the South directly led to the Reach joining with the West, Stannis would come very close to victory. To review his history as a commander, we should start with his defense of Storm's End during Robert's Rebellion. Yeah, he was aged 18 to 19 years old, and he successfully waited out the Tyrell siege. In the face of extreme hardship, desperation, and threat of mutiny, it seems he held it together with sheer will until relief in the persons of Davos Seaworth and Ned Stark arrived. Following the lifting of the siege, and at his brother's order, he oversaw the assembly of the fleet that would, in conjunction with Paxter Redwine, seize Dragonstone from the Targaryens. Yeah, and for that victory, Stannis was granted the Targaryen stronghold and appointed Robert's Master of Ships. In that role, he defeated Victarion Greyjoy at sea, no small accomplishment, and was responsible for taking Great Wick during the Greyjoy Rebellion. His command style is similar to Tywin Lannister's in that he commands from the rear so as to give maximum input on all facets of any given battle. Although as an apparent outlier, it seems that Stannis led the final charge that broke the wildlings at the Battle of the Wall, as evidenced by Jon Snow seeing the royal standard fly past him there. Overall, thanks to his dry and pedantic nature, he is somewhat uninspirational on the battlefield. He gives no big pre-battle speeches and is largely unpopular among his subordinate lords. However, in spite, or perhaps because of this, he's popular with the common soldiers in his army, as shown by this quote from A Dance of Dragons. Whatever doubts his lords might nurse, the common men seem to have faith in their king. Stannis had smashed Mance Raider's wildlings at the wall and cleaned Asha and her ironborn out of Deepwood Mott. He was Robert's brother, Victor, in a famous sea battle off Fair Isle, the man who held Storm's End all through Robert's rebellion. And he bore a hero's sword, the enchanted blade Lightbringer, whose glow lit up the night. Yeah, while his lords may find it problematic or view it as stubbornness, his iron will seems to inspire some kind of devotion or at least faith amongst his soldiers. And he's a meticulous tactical planner who's able to exploit the weaknesses in enemy armies. In the Battle of the Wall, we'll see him use heavy cavalry and knowledge of wildling disunity to attack in three separate points, capitalizing on wildling weakness of independence. Right, and he's also very judicious in his use of combined arms, such as sea and land forces, to fight battles, as we'll see in the Battle of the Blackwater. He will also later show himself willing to use indigenous forces to fight battles in unfamiliar terrain, such as at the Battle of Deepwood Mott. 
though we'd also point out that his alliance with those men is in fact suggested by Jon Snow. And as far as offense goes, his speed of movement, perhaps unsurprisingly, varies based upon both the composition of his troops and the conditions. The march of his cavalry to King's Landing in A Clash of Kings was very quick, likely because his army was almost all mounted at the time, with the army there outpacing the navy coming up the coast. Meanwhile, his march to Winterfell from Deepwood Ma in A Dance with Dragons will be painfully slow, probably because the army had more infantry and archers than cavalry, not to mention they were hampered by the continuing snow. Yeah, and as far as the composition of his troops goes, his strong navy included most of the royal fleet, with the key addition of Salador Sans cell sails. Prior to the defection of the majority of Renly's Stormlanders to his side, his army was only about 5,000. Here's Renly's assessment from A Clash of Kings. That paltry rabble I see there, huddled under the castle walls. I'll call them 5,000 and be generous. Codfish lords and onion knights and swords. Half of them are like to come over to me before the battle starts. You have fewer than 400 horse, my scouts tell me. Free riders in boiled leather who will not stand an instant against armoured lances. But after most of Renly's mounted host comes over to Stannis following Renly's death, he picks up an additional 16,000 soldiers, making his total force for the Battle of the Blackwater around 21,000 men. However, the disaster at Blackwater leaves Stannis with a very small force after casualties and secondary defections. It says, Stannis still had some 1,500 on Dragonstone, more than half of them Florence. While his later victories at the Wall and Deepwood Mott, coupled with Stannis treating with the mountain clans, swells his numbers to 5,000 or more, by the end of A Dance with Dragons, the elements have taken their toll and Stannis' army is dying in droves. His estimated strength before the Battle of Ice would put Stannis at around 4,500 men, fewer than he started with at his confrontation with Renly in Clash that we mentioned. And now, speaking of Renly, let's review his army and command style. The youngest of Lord Stefan's three sons had grown into a man bold but heedless, who acted from impulse rather than calculation. In that, as in so much else, Renly was like his brother Robert, and utterly unlike Stannis. Okay, so most of you will know that we've just covered Renly Baratheon very recently, and that was an outgrowth of writing this series on the War of the Five Kings here. We had so much to say about Renly, and we're pretty sure he would approve of that. Oh yeah, I'm sure Renly would love the idea of people talking about him for hours on end. And so we learn a bit about his command style in A Clash of Kings when we see him in Cat's point of view, making his leisurely way up the Rose Road, feasting his bannermen and holding tourneys. Cat thinks of them as knights of summer, sadly noting how they crave glory but are utterly inexperienced or even uncaring of the realities of war. Winter will come for them all, she thinks. And we get a sense of his army size when he shows his encampment to Catelyn and comments that if Rob has 40,000 men, 
I have twice that number here, and this is only part of my strength. Mace Tyrell remains at Highgarden with another 10,000. I have a strong garrison holding Storm's End, and soon enough the Dornishmen will join me with all their power. And never forget my brother Stannis, who holds Dragonstone and commands the Lords of the Narrow Sea. Well, clearly Renly was counting a couple of his chicks before they hatched there, as neither Dorne nor Stannis had shown much indication of joining him. But even without those projections, it would seem he had an army approaching a 100,000 men in size. And soon enough, we see Renly preparing to face his brother Stannis in battle at Storm's End. Even with only a fraction of his main force at his back, it should have been an easy thing for Renly to defeat Stannis's 5,000, as his men were mostly mounted knights versus Stannis's fewer than 400 horse. Okay, and we get our only glimpse of Renly's battle command strategy as he prepares for that battle. His impatience leads him to reject the notion of allowing Stannis to impotently besiege Storm's End, while he himself rejoined his main army and focused on the principal target at King's Landing. He instead commits himself to a battle that he thinks he cannot help but win. Out of hubris and a proud refusal to leave Stannis unbloodied for fear of what men might say. That's right, and it's really hard to imagine either of his brothers making that mistake. And so Renly distributes the command thusly before the battle. Loras Tyrell, who's a talented jouster but a green boy nonetheless, is going to lead the charge in the van. Lord Mathis Rowan, who is an experienced and sensible man, who, incidentally, is the one who suggested leaving Stannis to his own devices but had been overruled, would take the center, and Bryce Caron, another of Renly's Rainbow Guard, would be on the left. Renly himself would take the right, and his grandfather, the elderly Lord Estamont, was placed in charge of the reserve. Compare this with Tywin Lannister's strategy of placing Gregor Clegane in the van and commanding the reserve himself. And you get a real sense, not only of the contrast in discipline and strategies, but in the vast gulf of experience that separates these two commanders. Well, to be fair, we never get to see how this strategy would have worked out, but placing relatively inexperienced favourites in command positions seems to be a bit of a non-starter. Now, the final king to be introduced would make no such mistake. I am the Greyjoy, Lord Reaper of Pike, King of Salt and Rock, son of the sea wind, and no man gives me a crown. I pay the iron price. I will take my crown, as Uron Redhand did 5,000 years ago. Balon Greyjoy was the fifth king in the War of the Five Kings, although according to Archmaester Benedict of the Citadel, quote, there had never been a War of the Five Kings since Renly Baratheon had been slain before Balon Greyjoy had crowned himself. Nonetheless, Balon seized a moment for himself, and his particular style and reasons are significant. 
And we want to mention that while Balon is the only one of the five kings that we have yet to cover, we do have plans for a Balon Greyjoy episode sometime after we've concluded this analysis of the war. Yeah, he'll be our next Ironborn subject, and we're looking forward to that one. Now, Balon rose in rebellion against King Robert Baratheon early in Robert's reign, hoping that the realm would be disunited under a new king. In this, he was disappointed because he lost, and he lost badly. His defeat at the hands of Robert and his principal commanders, Ned Stark and Stannis, festered, especially given his only surviving son was taken to be raised by Ned Stark at Winterfell. And thus, when he crowns himself king again, following Robert's and Ned's deaths, he doesn't set strategic goals necessarily, but rather is psychologically dominated by his need for vengeance to compensate for the losses of his sons and crown in his first rebellion. He invades the relatively undefended north to grab up as much territory as possible, but the problem is the north is massive and the Iron Islands certainly don't have the requisite military strength to hold territory. Well, Balon certainly recognises this, and will be seen to focus on keeping Moat Kaelin closed to prevent reinforcements relieving the north while his subordinates reeve and raid the western shore. Balon doesn't participate in battles himself, but sends those subordinate commanders to do all the heavy lifting. His brother Victarion, the captain of the Iron Fleet, is charged with holding Moat Kaelin, while his daughter Asher goes to Deepwood Mott via Sea Dragon Point, and his newly returned son, Theon, is sent to the stony shore with a small number of ships under his nominal command, but truly under the watchful eye of one Dagmar Clefjaw. Yeah, it's not for Balon to send an inexperienced commander into the thick of battle. Theon lacks experience commanding both ships and Ironborn in general, and rather than cater to his son's rather substantial ego, Balon opts for caution and experience. Overall, and perhaps unsurprisingly, Balon Greyjoy seems primarily motivated by his own emotion, by ironborn ideals of violence and rapine, and by the typical caution of raiders whose main strength lies at sea. And in our next segment, we'll get a brief review of the subordinates he assigns to lead his campaign in the north. Yeah, so we're going to wrap up this segment and get ready for a review of the main players in the war. Since the war comprises much of the action of the first three books, this is hardly a short list. When we come back, we're going to take some time to review the characters who have the most impact on the action in the various regions and how their roles impact the plot. This is no longer a game for two players, if ever it was. So, in addition to the principal commanders and claimants to the crowns of Westeros, there are countless other players, from soldiers and sub-commanders to courtiers and advisors. These are people who mostly need little or no introduction, and in fact, like the kings themselves, we've covered quite a few of them in our episodes over the years. 
but today we'll be looking at them through the lens of the War of the Five Kings specifically, and we thought it would be handy to have a brief rundown of who does what, where, with whom, and for what reasons. And we'll begin with the point of view character who probably has the greatest impact on the war without being directly involved in the fighting. And that's really only because she's a woman operating in a man's world. We're talking, of course, of Catelyn Stark. You have courage. Not battle courage, perhaps, but, I don't know, a kind of woman's courage. So, as we'll see, Catelyn's actions will influence the outbreak of open hostilities between Stark and Lannister. But her actions were, in turn, directly influenced not only by Lannister perfidy, with the two separate attempts on her son Bran's life, but by the manipulation of Peter Baelish, who fed Cat and Ned lies about the motivation of the Lannisters for reasons of his own. Hindsight being what it is, it's easy to look back at cause and effect and point fingers in various directions, but it's less easy to pinpoint where a chain of events actually begins when dealing with a continuum of human activity. That said, we think it's also important to recognize that a large part of Kat's significance to the narrative lies in the fact that she's the point of view through whose eyes we see a lot of the action, from Rob's arc to Renly's death and much of the war itself. It's she who sees the Battle of Whispering Wood and the capture of Jaime Lannister. It's she who witnesses Renly's muster, his parley with Stannis, and his eventual death. Her perspective on many of the characters is invaluable, and her impact is far-reaching. That's right. From the time of her reunion with him at Mokalin, she acts as advisor to Rob, perhaps a role she prepared for in her youth when she acted as a father's heir until Edmure was born and, after her mother's death, as the Lady of Riverrun. In the role of advisor, she negotiates the crossing from Walder Frey, with both Rob and Arya promised to marry Frey's. While there's never a hint that she doesn't intend to adhere to the bargain, we must remember that at the time Ned still lived and we cannot underestimate the sense of urgency she and Rob must have felt to get across that river and put their plan into action. Yeah, and later it's she who devises the plan to negotiate with Renly in an effort to prize Tywin Lannister loose from Harrenhal before Sir Stafford Lannister could march out of the West with the new army he was gathering, a possibility that could leave Rob trapped between Tywin and the new host. Here's the exchange between her and her uncle Brynden. Unless he must leave Harrenhal, she said, to face some other threat. Her uncle looked at her thoughtfully. Lord Renly. King Renly. If she would ask help from the man, she would need to grant him the style he had claimed for himself. Perhaps, the blackfish smiled a dangerous smile. He'll want something, though. He'll want what kings always want, she said. Homage. Okay, so Kat ends up being the one sent to treat with Renly, which makes her an invaluable POV in the Reach and Stormlands giving us the only glimpse we get of those areas until A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons, with the exception of Davos's brief chapter at Storm's End. That she was prepared to offer Renly homage on Rob's behalf is hinted by her exchange with the Blackfish. 
Whether Rob approved of that, we'll never know, since her meeting with Renly was interrupted by news of Stannis' arrival at Storm's End, and everything changed from there. Yes, it did, not only for Renly and Stannis, but for Rob as well, as we'll see following her return. And as much as Catelyn offered Rob invaluable counsel early on, following his proclamation as king, he began to listen to others more often, and to make his own decisions too, in several cases to his detriment. By the time of the Red Wedding, she had been effectively removed from Rob's counsels, and was to have been sent to Seaguard to sit out the invasion of the North. And that brings us to the next player, Catelyn's uncle, Brendan Blackfish Tully. My first rule of war is never give the enemy his wish. Brendan Tully is Lord Hoster's younger brother, who gained great renown as a knight fighting on the Stepstones during the War of the Nine Penny Kings. He was close to his brother Hoster in their youth, but they quarrelled over Brynden's refusal to take a wife. Incidentally, George has flatly refused to reveal the reason for Brynden's sustained bachelorhood, replying to a fan's query if he would shed any light on it with a single word. Nope. In story, Kat expresses her own conviction that her uncle will never marry. It is his stubbornness on the issue that led to Hoster calling him the Black Goat of the Tully Flock, which led to Brynden's retort that as their sigil was a fish, he would be a black fish instead, taking a black trout in place of the usual silver Tully trout as his personal sigil from that day forth. And following Liza Tully's marriage to John Aaron, Brynden served in the Vale as the Knight of the Gate, a post he resigned when Liza refused to send aid to the Riverlands following Lannister attacks there. He accompanied Catelyn to White Harbor and then to Moat Caelan, where he became a key part of his great-nephew Rob's war council and the commander of his outriders. He played a major role in all of Rob's battles, and his advice and experience would prove invaluable to his nephew. It was he who saw that Tywin would sit at Harrenhal, waiting for them to grow desperate enough to attack him there. But such a move would go against the Blackfish's first rule of war, which, as we heard, is to never give the enemy his wish. We can see the influence of this precept in many of Rob's decisions as a commander, and the move into the West might have been largely masterminded by him. Certainly his scouts and outriders played an invaluable role in that campaign, and would have played an even larger role had things gone as planned. That they didn't has been laid, in story at least, largely at the door of his nephew Edmure, our final tully of this segment. Only my sweet brother would crowd all these useless mouths into a castle that might soon be under siege. Edmure is Catelyn's younger brother, born long enough after his elder sister that she remembers being her father's heir before his birth. Ned thinks of him as a boy, perhaps also indicating a sizable gap in age with his sister, and upon hearing of his brother-in-law's defense of the Riverlands, he thinks... His wife's brother was young and more gallant than wise. This characterization really sets the stage for Edmure throughout A Game of Thrones and The Clash of Kings. Yeah, Edmure's passionate defense of Tully lands and people 
combined with mistakes made from youth and inexperience, would lead him from heroic lordling defending his borders to captive in chains not once but twice. We'll discuss the ins and outs of Edmure's decision-making process later in this series. Here we'll note that, as heir and later Lord of Riverrun, he would be at the centre of several key moments in the Riverlands campaigns, and that his actions have been questioned by people, both in story and in the fandom, as naive, impulsive, foolish, or all of the above. Well, from his youth, he was apparently known as a hot-headed, though good-hearted young man. Along with his favorite companions, young noblemen like Mark Piper and Patrick Malister, he seems to have enjoyed a certain amount of ale-drinking and wenching. Yet he cared deeply for his people. Ned would comment on his gallantry in the early defense of the Riverlands following the atrocities of Gregor Clegane, and when Catelyn returned from her mission in the south, she found people crowded inside Riverrun's walls. When she asked who they were and what was going on, Edmure answered, My people. They were afraid. And Cat's thoughts are quite revealing of his character. Only my sweet brother would crowd all these useless mouths into a castle that might soon be under siege. Catelyn knew that Edmure had a soft heart. Sometimes she thought his head was even softer. Okay, so some doubts there from his sister about his decision-making. Although, as we'll see, she'll both come to second-guess those doubts and to embody them in her own arc. And there's another person that Kat has her doubts about, and whom she tried to counsel Rob to treat differently. That she was ultimately unable to reinforce Ned's own final instructions to Rob must have haunted her until her final moments. That Ned wanted Theon Greyjoy kept close indicates his own understanding, not only of Lord Balon, but possibly of the young man who had been his ward. He smiled a lot, as if the world were a secret joke that only he was clever enough to understand. Theon needs little introduction. The heir to Lord Balon Greyjoy of Pike, he had been Ned Stark's ward since his father's rebellion ten years previously. Though he asserts that Ned was a second father to him, and that Rob treats him like a brother, his smile, sly and secretive, is noted by several members of the Stark family, perhaps indicating some hidden depth or secret motivation. Indeed, on that occasion, when Catelyn thinks about it to herself at Rob's audience with Cleos Frey, it's very likely that he had already convinced Rob to send him to Pike to treat with his father on Rob's behalf. Ironically, though he craved a crown for himself and sought to achieve one through his father, Theon's actions would have a greater impact on Rob's reign than his father's. In his bid to achieve his father's approval and acceptance, neither of which he gained, he lost Rob and the Starks and opened the door to even greater misfortune for his foster family. Yeah, as we've noted, Theon would become caught in an ever-widening trap of his own making, a nightmare from which he would one day emerge profoundly changed. 
For now, he is the Westerosi equivalent of the Duke of Clarence, a tragic figure who may not have drowned in a barrel of wine, but whose fate, in true Martinian style, is probably much, much worse. As for his motivations, Lady Barbary Dustin would one day ask him why he loved the Starks. Theon's simple answer, I wanted to be one of them, sheds much light on his sly smiles and secret machinations. They say Asher's favourite gown is a chainmail halberk that hangs down past her knees with boiled leather small clothes beneath. So, the one family member of Theon's who seems to actually care about him is his sister Asha. He first reconnects with her on Pike after his ten-year absence when she passes herself off as Esgrid, the wife of the local shipwright. That Theon tries to seduce her doesn't tell us much we don't already know about him, but it's pretty revealing of her. She's clever and is seeking to know her long-lost brother for the man he has become. Yet, in spite of his relatively poor showing, she seems to hold some affection for him, inspired by their shared parentage. And speaking of that, she is presented as Lord Balon's favoured surviving child and natural heir. But Balon's own harsh words to Theon about his Greenlander garb seem to indicate he might find Asher a bit unnatural. My daughter has taken an axe for a lover, Lord Balon said. I will not have my son bedeck himself like a whore. Yeah, so while Asha most certainly has the leadership ability, the intelligence, and the drive to be her father's heir, it's not quite clear that he was ready to accept that. In fact, his statement reads very much like that of a parent who is stressed that his children aren't conforming to gender norms. Asha's impact on the War of the Five Kings would be mostly in her role as leader of one of the bands of Ironmen who seized part of the North in Rob's absence and as a sensible foil to Theon. It's only later that we gain her point of view and see her in action among her people. Asha is strong, confident, sensual, and not afraid of violence. But she's also highly intelligent and has moments of tenderness for her brother, her mother and her lover that serve to round out her character to a level of complexity that we hope to see more of in upcoming chapters. And, moving on, it's while Theon is talking to Asher as Esgred that we first hear more of his uncle, Victarion. Lord Captain of the Iron Fleet and a fearsome warrior, I have heard them sing of him in the alehouses. Victarion Greyjoy, commander of the Iron Fleet, is best known for the destruction of the Lannister fleet at Lannisport during Balon's Rebellion. That he was later defeated himself by none other than Stannis Baratheon is a fact that he has never forgotten, though it's mentioned only in passing. He is a fierce warrior and commander, though we get a more nuanced picture when we gain his point of view in A Feast for Crows. Yeah, and prior to that, Theon thinks of him as a great grey bullock, strong and tireless and dutiful, but not like to win any races. And George has said in interviews that he's, quote, dumb as a stump. 
Nonetheless, it's Victarion that Balon chooses to lead the Iron Fleet against Moat Kaelin, the linchpin of the Ironborn invasion of the North, while his children, Asher and Theon, are sent reaving up the coast. It's a task that Asher takes to gladly enough, though, as we'll see, the insults of being given only eight longships really rankles with Theon. And strikes us that, with his military prowess juxtaposed with his apparent lack of intellect, Victarion could be described with a phrase that Tyrion Lannister uses about his sister Cersei, not without a certain low cunning. Perhaps an interesting comparison to keep our eyes on as the story progresses, and a nice segue to King's Landing and the Lannister camp. The longer Cersei waits, the angrier she'll become, and anger makes her stupid. I much prefer angry and stupid to composed and cunning. So another character who needs little introduction is Cersei Lannister. As the mother of Joffrey, King Robert's nominal heir, she seizes control of King's Landing after her husband's death. Her self-regard has been fed by years of being Lord Tywin's only daughter and favoured child, though as we've discussed, Tywin's children are perhaps best viewed as pawns in the long game of his life's work trying to establish House Lannister as the most powerful and respected family in the Seven Kingdoms. She is probably best seen through the eyes of her two brothers who know her best. Yeah, after a lifetime incestuous relationship with her twin brother Jamie, his view of her personality becomes relatively clear as his redemption arc progresses. Jamie sees in his twin's determination and strong will a tendency to veer into obstinacy and obsessiveness. Well aware of her temper and willingness to use her power over others for her own benefit, he'll begin to pull back from her for the first time in their lives and develops a clear inner monologue about her. Her sister liked to think of herself as Lord Tywin with teats, but she was wrong. Their father had been as relentless and implacable as a glacier, where Cersei was all wildfire, especially when thwarted. Of course, that's all in the future. As the war begins, he is under her spell and speaks and thinks of her with obvious longing and devotion. And in Tyrion's POV, we get an early assessment of both of his siblings when he was being held as Catelyn Stark's captive in the Vale. His sister was not without a certain low cunning, but her pride blinded her. She would see the insult in this, not the opportunity. And Jaime was even worse, rash and headstrong and quick to anger. His brother never untied a knot when he could slash it in two with his sword. So, a brief picture of Cersei and Jaime both there. The former proud, stubborn, and not nearly as clever as she thinks. Jaime will grow more disillusioned with her as he returns to her side as the war winds down, and she becomes more unpredictable. Tyrion's often fraught relationship with Cersei, which was always tempered by family loyalty, will also be irretrievably damaged during the war. But in the meantime, Tyrion will play a major role in King's Landing, attempting to preserve his family's power base there. My mind is my weapon. My brother has his sword. King Robert has his warhammer. 
and I have my mind. And a mind needs books as a sword needs a whetstone if it is to keep its edge. Tyrion Lannister, the stunted dwarf with mismatched eyes, known throughout Westeros as the Imp, is an excellent foil to his sister Cersei. As ugly to look upon as she is beautiful, and as intelligent and well-informed as she is shallow and cunning, he is at once an anti-hero and an anti-villain, meaning his good deeds and contributions to society are often overshadowed by either his perceived dark nature or his loyalty to his family, the avowed villains of the story. Yeah, George has actually described him as the greyest of grey characters, and as a self-described grotesque, it's easy to see why in story, where beauty is often equated with character and the reverse, he's perceived to be a monster by many, a twisted monkey demon, in fact. But through his point of view, we also see his intelligence and even his kindness and generosity at times, his sympathetic backstory and his struggles against his family, the only one of whom seems to genuinely like him, is Jamie, which he reciprocates. And yet he remains dutiful to House Lannister, perhaps in an effort to gain the approval of his father, who is disdainful of his youngest son. His sister Cersei seems to have a lifelong dislike of him as well, and both may be rooted in the fact that his mother died giving birth to him. In spite of it, and the fact that he confesses to Jon Snow, sometimes I'd imagine my father burning, at other times my sister, and later at the Eyrie, I wished my own Lord Father dead, and my sister, our gracious queen as well. Tyrion still feels an obligation to, quote, do my part for the honour of my house. As we said, Tyrion will play a central role in King's Landing when his father, showing what he really thinks of the daughter who fancies herself a female version of him, sends Tyrion to rein her and her son in at the height of the war. As we mentioned, their relationship would be irreparably damaged during this time, perhaps aided by the absence of Jaime, who seems to have acted as a pacifying influence to his siblings' rivalry. And time may yet show us that Tyrion's loyalty to House Lannister has been couched all along in ambition, as we'll see numerous hints about the hopes he's harboured. Certainly with Jaime in the Kingsguard, apparently for swearing his lands and titles along with marriage, Tyrion should have been Tywin's heir. Lannister family dynamics being what they are though, Things are not that easy, but that's a conversation for another time. Early on, Tyrion seems content to be Tywin's instrument when called upon. And speaking of which, Lord Tywin has another very different sort of instrument that he will call upon frequently during his campaign in the Riverlands. The mountain that rides, Sir Gregor Clegane. No other knight in the realm inspires such terror in our enemies. And of course we've talked about Gregor Clegane before. In a story full of monsters, he's a monster that stands head and shoulders above the rest. Literally. Nearly eight feet tall and without an ounce of human compassion, Gregor is a known rapist, murderer, and worse. 
His knighthood must have been bought by Tywin Lannister because it seems impossible that he ever showed a shred of knightly honour. Yeah, and it seems that Tywin has been content to use Sir Gregor's services such as they are throughout his life. From the murders of Prince Aegon and Elia of Dawn during the horrific sack of King's Landing to the War of the Five Kings, Tywin would tell Tyrion, Sir Gregor has his uses. Every lord has need of a beast from time to time. And so it seems logical that the first person Tywin would turn to to bring chaos and destruction to the Riverlands would be Gregor. And of course Tywin's eventual heir will turn Sir Gregor in a way that no one could have ever predicted. But that's for the future. For now, Lord Tywin's counterpart in the Reach, Mace Tyrell, has his own instrument of destruction. Lord Randall Tarly is no Gregor Clegane, but in terms of doing his liege lord's grunt work in war, he stands out nearly as much as the mountain. Tarly is the real danger, a narrow man, but iron-willed and shrewd, and as good a soldier as the Reach could boast. The Lord of Horn Hill is a veteran of Robert's Rebellion, an experienced soldier and a hard man. The father of Samuel Tarley, he sent his eldest son to the Wall for the crime of being too soft. He led Mace Tyrell's vanguard at the Battle of Ashcroft and was mainly responsible for the indecisive victory there over Robert Baratheon. It was indecisive in that Robert was able to retreat in good order, but Tarly did slay Lord Cafarin, who had joined Robert after the Battle of Summerhall, and sent his head to Ares in King's Landing, perhaps proving his opinion of rebellious lords. And yet, in spite of the fact that his wife is Salise Baratheon's first cousin, Tarly would throw in with his liege lord once again in the War of the Five Kings, declaring for Renly, a rebellious lord if ever there was one, and even hosting his new king during the muster in the Reach. Unafraid to oppose Tywin Lannister when it seemed to be in his favour, Tully would switch sides when the tables turned and play a significant role in the combined Tyrell-Lannister force, including a series of major commands. Yeah, and we'll discuss Tarly's role and his leadership more fully later, including his likely resentment and his relative lack of advancement for all his service to House Tyrell. But it's to Lord Randall's liege lord that we'll turn next. He has a prodigious appetite, this one. Mace Tyrell, Lord Paramount of the Reach, is called Lord Puffish by his mother, Elena. But perhaps he might more aptly be called a blue whale for his great appetite. Mace is hungry, not for wealth, which he has in plenty, but for power and prestige. Olena Tyrell will tell Sansa Stark, Lord Puffish is determined that Marjorie shall be queen, which pretty well sums up the level of ambition we're dealing with here. So, Mace was a loyalist in Robert's Rebellion and took nominal credit for the aforementioned victory at Ashford, after which he was content to command the siege of Storm's End 
which was successful in neutralizing Stannis Baratheon for the duration of the war, although he surrendered to Ned Stark following the rebel victories at the Trident and King's Landing. No doubt due to Robert's well-known clemency, Mace doesn't seem to have suffered much for his loyalist stance, although he was never included in the inner circle at court as most of his fellow Lords Paramount were. And while Mace's ambition probably contributed to his loyalist position in Robert's Rebellion, since he came up short on that gamble, it's probably no surprise that, taking advantage of the turmoil following Robert's death, he would first crown a new usurper and then switch sides, pledging himself and his daughter first to Renly and then to Joffrey Baratheon. But Marjorie is no witless pawn, as we'll see, and the Tyrell family makes enormous gains through their eventual association with the Lannisters. And in spite of backing the wrong horse early in the race, the Tyrell fortunes only seem to be on the upswing. Yeah, and while some might credit Lord Mace's mother, Lady Olenna, as the mastermind behind the family fortunes, we're not quite sure that Mace is as doltish and disingenuous as he seems. Like his daughter, he seems to possess a kind of calculated innocence, in spite of which, as Kevin Lannister will one day think, the more I give him, the more he wants. And speaking of characters who want it all, Melisandre of Ashai is one such, who demands everything from her chosen king, Stannis, in exchange for her assistance in achieving his goals. We all must choose, man or woman, young or old, lord or peasant. Our choices are the same. We choose light or we choose darkness. Melisandre, a former slave child called Melanie, is a priestess of R'hllor. Varys informs Littlefinger that she arrived at Dragonstone, quote, some years past, insinuating that she was with Selyse before the events of A Game of Thrones. So Mel would probably have arrived at Dragonstone while Stannis was still in King's Landing and ingratiated herself with Selyse, giving her the platform and opportunity to get to Stannis himself. And Melisandre had previously spent, quote, years beyond count practicing her magics, including the study of ancient prophecy. She equates Azor High and the prince that was promised, believing Stannis to be this great savior against the darkness. It would seem that Melisandre wants Stannis to win the Iron Throne in order to unite the realm against a common enemy. So Stannis is the fulfillment of ancient prophecy in her mind, and she views herself as a force for the greater good. However, it's clear that Mel is simply a zealot, a master manipulator, and with her box of powders and tricks, you could compare her to a snake oil salesman. She makes mistakes with her flame readings and predictions, in spite of which she bases her whole campaign on her own prophetic interpretations. Despite being fully aware of her own ability to misconstrue and err, she usually maintains a resolute veneer. Regarding prophecies and mistakes, she says, If sometimes I have mistaken a warning for a prophecy, or a prophecy for a warning, the fault lies in the reader, not the book. But despite being partially unreliable, 
Melisandre does have significant and very real magical powers, and is aiming to use them to help sit Stannis on the Iron Throne. Her powers of persuasion are also unquestionable, evidenced by the fact that she manages to ingratiate herself with Stannis himself, who might be called nobody's fool. When Melisandre enters the story, the reader has no idea what her magical powers are or how they could have an effect on the greater narrative. She possesses an odd mixture of charlatanism and legitimate magic, an intoxicating mixture for those characters around her, and she makes a strange bedfellow for Stannis in more ways than one. Perhaps a more likely advisor for a man like Stannis Baratheon is the honest knight of lowly birth, Sir Davos Seaworth. And we've actually compared these two characters to Stannis' respective shoulder angels. I am a man. I'm kind to my wife, but I have known other women. I've tried to be a father to my sons to help make them a place in this world. I, I've broken laws, but I never felt evil until tonight. I would say my parts are mixed, milady, Good and bad. Davos Seaworth was born in Flea Bottom in King's Landing, and after an apprenticeship with a Tairashi smuggler in his youth, he became one of the most notorious and successful smugglers in the Seven Kingdoms. His famous rescue mission during Robert's Rebellion, running Paxter Redwine's blockade of Storm's End to bring Stannis Baratheon's starving garrison a cargo of salt fish and onions, earned him a knighthood from Stannis and the sobriquet Onion Knight. Yeah, not only a knighthood, but a keep on Cape Roth, where his wife and younger sons reside. But he also lost the first joint off the four fingers of his left hand to pay for his life of smuggling. While the punishment reveals much about Stannis' sense of justice, the fact that he submitted to the judgment also tells us a lot about Davos' humility and the fact that he then kept his finger bones in a pouch around his neck for luck suggests no little bit of superstition as well. Davos has seven sons, four of whom serve on board ships in Stannis' fleet. His fifth son, Devon, serves Stannis as a squire. Shortly after Joffrey's name-day tourney in 298 and John Arryn's death, Stannis and Davos departed King's Landing for Dragonstone, bringing most of the royal fleet with them. What they did there for the months leading up to Robert's death is somewhat of a mystery, since Stannis did not answer any of the letters that were sent him. Varys would tell Ned in the Black Cells, No one knows what Stannis has been doing on Dragonstone, but I'll wager you that he's gathered more swords than seashells. And it seems that sometime around the time of Robert's death, Davos was sent to recruit the services of the Lysine pirate Salador San, after which he embarked on another mission, this time to the Stormlands in secret. It seems likely that he brought news of what Stannis suspected about Cersei's children in an effort to get support for Stannis and his claim. And by this time it was obvious to most that Stannis would press that claim, though his silence, most likely during the period of Davos's absence on his diplomatic mission, did not go unnoticed. As Tywin would tell Tyrion, I felt from the beginning that Stannis was a greater danger than all the others combined, yet he does nothing. Oh, Varys hears his whispers. Stannis is building ships. Stannis is hiring sellswords. Stannis is bringing a shadowbinder from a shy. But what does it mean? Is any of it true? 
So it seems that no word of Davos's mission to the Stormlands reached Varys or Tywin, which probably proves how good of a smuggler he really is. And by the time Stannis made his claim public, Davos would find himself back on Dragonstone, where he would witness the death of Maester Cresson, Melisandre's burning of the Seven, and the presentation of quote-unquote Lightbringer. Yeah, and throughout all of this, we get an excellent sense of an honest and pragmatic man who will bring his lord nothing but good and loyal service. Now we have two characters to review who are anything but honest and loyal, which will, of course, have significant impact on the war. We're speaking of Roose Bolton and his bastard son, Ramsay Snow. Roose Bolton, Lord of the Dreadford, had a small voice, yet when he spoke, larger men quieted to listen. His eyes were curiously pale, almost without color, and his look disturbing. Roose Bolton, Lord of the Dreadfor, is a chilling character. Descriptions of him always mentioned his pale eyes, soft voice, and almost ageless skin. He hardly ever raises his voice, but manages to compel the attention of those he's speaking to. Theon Greyjoy will give some of the best descriptions we have of him, thinking, On Roose Bolton's face, rage and joy looked much the same. And this. Once a boy called Theon Greyjoy had enjoyed tweaking Bolton as they sat at council with Rob Stark, mocking his soft voice and making japes about leeches. He must have been mad. This is no man to jape with. You had only to look at Bolton to know that he had more cruelty in his pinky toe than all the phrase combined. Yeah, and he clearly unnerves Rob Stark, who mentions it on more than one occasion, perhaps a grim bit of foreshadowing from George there. That Lord Bolton engages in some questionable practices, including the outlawed First Night and the rumoured flaying of his foes, is strongly hinted by the text. His motto, though, as he tells his bastard son Ramsay, is... A peaceful land, a quiet people. And as such, he goes to great lengths to ensure that any of his questionable activities do not come to the attention of his liege lords, the Starks. And that Roos was nominally successful in his efforts to stay off the Stark radar is evident when Jon Snow thinks... Eddard Stark had never had any reason to complain of the Lord of the Dreadfort, so far as Jon knew... But even so, he had never trusted him with his whispery voice and his pale, pale eyes. But still, there's the sense of unease, the lack of complete trust. In spite of the fact that Roos was there when Ned called his banners in both Robert's and Balon Greyjoy's rebellions, we get a sense of underlying tension, no doubt exacerbated by the centuries-long rivalry between House Stark and House Bolton. That Roos is renowned for his practice of using leeches to purge himself of bad blood gains him the nickname the Leech Lord and really makes him that much creepier. And then there's his bastard son, Ramsay. The Boltons have always been as cruel as they are cunning. 
but this one seems a beast in human skin. Ramsay is the embodiment of this stereotypical bastard born of rape, and Roos doesn't make any attempt to deny it. He raped the boy's mother, apparently in some twisted version of the first night, after hanging her new husband for the crime of not informing his lord of his marriage. He had the man's brother's tongue torn out to prevent word of his crime reaching the Stark's ears, and gave the woman the rights to the mill and an annual allowance to support the child born from the union, since he could see that the boy had his eyes. And Ramsay grew up resenting his base-born status, and cannot abide being called Snow. However, throughout the events of the War of the Five Kings, he is unquestionably a Snow. His resentment seems to have been fostered by his mother, while his cruelty and corruption may have been encouraged by the servant called Reek, whom Rue sent his mother when Ramsay became unruly as a young boy. While his mother had agreed never to tell Ramsay of his parentage in exchange for the support Roos gave her, she undoubtedly did. And as he grew into a young man, his resentment became focused on Roos's true-born son, Domeric. Yeah, and it's heavily implied that Ramsay killed Domeric by Roos himself, who seems resigned to the fact that Ramsay will also kill any true-born sons his new wife, Fatwald the Frey, will give him. While Roos is away in the south, Ramsay begins massing troops at the Dreadfort, though it seems hard to credit that this was without Roos's knowledge. He forcibly marries Lady Donella Hornwood after her husband is killed in the Riverlands and locks her away to die. Sir Roger Cassell will attempt to rescue her, but it's stated that she was found locked in a tower, quote, with her mouth all bloody and her fingers chewed off. And we get a strong hint much later from Theon, what might have caused the lady to gnaw her own fingers. When Theon recalls, Reek had tried to bite his own ring finger off once to stop it hurting after they had stripped the skin from it. So clearly a man of boundless cruelty, which we'll get to see much more of later on. During the War of the Five Kings, though, Ramsay's role is more or less as an outlier until the sack of Winterfell and abduction of Theon Greyjoy, which comes as the action in the south is winding down. So, while Ramsay isn't a major operator in the war, we include him because of the role he'll play in its aftermath. He'll take over the role as cruel and vile tormentor that Joffrey Baratheon had only begun to inhabit, bringing a fully realized malefactor to the page in a way Joffrey, considering his youth, never quite did. Littlefinger the gods only know what game Littlefinger is playing. The final two players are very much behind the scenes, but no less important to the events of the war. Peter Baelish, the son of a minor lord from the Fingers in the Vale, is a master of coin, a position that he obtained through his connection with the former hand, John Arryn, and his wife Liza Tully, with whom Baelish has a long history. 
As Ward to Hoster Tully, Littlefinger, as he became known, was raised with the Tully children and formed a very close connection with both Cat and Liza. Yeah, he's a devious and clever man who's adept at cloaking his true loyalties and whose motivations remain a mystery to many people in story. Because we'll discuss Littlefinger more in-depth in the next segment on the origins of the conflict, we can leave him with his short introduction and move on to a brief look at his cohort on the small council, Lord Varys. Lord Varys knows all. Varys, known as the Spider, has been Master of Whisperers in the Seven Kingdoms since the reign of Ares II. From his days of whispering secrets into the ear of a paranoid madman, to the present, where we see a lot of his machinations in action, he is another player whose true loyalties and motivations remain somewhat mysterious. Born as a slave in Lys and castrated at a young age by a so-called sorcerer, he formed an early alliance with a sellsword who became the Pentoshi merchant Illyrio Mopatis. And both Varys and Littlefinger play unquestionably major, if quite subtle, roles in the origins of the conflict, with their mutual penchant for manipulation, as we'll see. For those interested in their motivations and wider scheming, we'll remind you that we've analyzed both men in previous episodes. But rest assured, we'll be discussing both of their roles in the run-up to the war in our next segment. Okay, and now we've reviewed two dozen of the main operators in the war. There are many others who will play bit parts of varying levels of significance. So many, in fact, that we could spend hours just discussing the cast of characters alone. But with this background, such as we have it, let's move on now to a brief discussion about the origins of the conflict. Hello, listeners of Radio Westeros. This is Walder Frey at the Twins. My young wife, sweet as honey, sends her regards. So there was a discussion about the influential players of the War of the Five Kings and Radio Westeros did not see fit to include yours truly. They say they can't discuss everybody and left out little Walder Frey. (laughs) Little old me. And of course that's fine. I am sat in my castle and have no plans to affect the war in any way. Mayhaps they meant no offence to Walder Frey, Lord of the Crossing. As a show of good faith, I invite Yoke Boy, Lady Guinevere and all of you Radio Westeros listeners to a party at my hall. No need to bring wine, the red will run. There will be bread and salt, and the music will go boom, boom, boom. And please, leave your pets tied up outside. Heh. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The wolf and the lion will soon be at each other's throats, whether we will it or no. So, with all the players and their backgrounds identified, we can set the stage for war by analyzing the motives of the principles and the political footing of the realm leading up to the outbreak of hostilities. We've discussed Robert's Rebellion as a foundation for the events of the main story, and many of our key players were combatants in that war 15 years prior. And we discussed in our Rob episode how Robert's Rebellion illustrated the change that can occur when lords unite against a king who has broken his feudal contract, and that the same unity could have been deployed against the Lannisters in the face of the truth of Stannis' accusations against Cersei. In fact, such an alliance would be suggested and rejected in Rob Stark's war council at Riverrun before the assembled lords declared him king in the north. But there were key differences in this time and with these leaders that led to a much bloodier and calamitous outcome. Well, it starts with Robert, that once promising leader who had aged into a spendthrift king who wanted all the pleasures of being king, but none of the responsibilities of ruling. Cersei would think of him as a coward who only wanted to be loved. His extravagances and lack of oversight of his key counselors had led to the realm being heavily in debt, with his father-in-law Tywin being the principal creditor. And his obsession with Lyanna Stark, along with his infidelities and lack of tender feelings for his own wife, no doubt contributed heavily to her resentment and her continued affair with Jaime. And in our Tywin episode, we mentioned that Tywin moving against the Riverlands whilst Robert still lived made little sense unless he knew about Robert's impending assassination. In fact, we could also consider Tywin's offer to foster Robert Arryn along the same lines. If Tywin didn't know about the plotting in King's Landing and the possible need to have an Arryn hostage to neutralise the Vale, would he have made this offer? Robert himself told Ned at Winterfell, Lord Tywin had never taken a ward before. So, one possible explanation is that Tywin was fully prepared to set the wheels of coup in motion, and perhaps plans had been laid when Cersei visited Casterly Rock earlier in the year. Certainly, Varys makes it clear to Ned in A Game of Thrones that there was a plot afoot to kill Robert at the Hand's tourney when he tells him, your friend I know, yet a fool nonetheless, and doomed unless you save him. 
Today was a near thing. They had hoped to kill him during the melee. Yeah, and even earlier, Bran overheard Cersei speaking to Jaime about Robert's death during their tryst in the first keep at Winterfell. She was clearly worried about Ned becoming Robert's hand. Jamie, who would rather have an honourable enemy rather than an ambitious one, pointed out that Ned was a safer option for them than one of Robert's brothers. Cersei's reply is interesting in light of what we come to learn about the politics of King's Landing. Oh, I don't deny he's loyal to Robert, that's obvious. But what happens when Robert dies and Joff takes the throne? And the sooner that comes to pass, the safer we'll all be. My husband grows more restless every day. Having Stark beside him will only make him worse. He's still in love with the sister, the insipid little dead 16-year-old. How long till he decides to put me aside for some new Liana? So, with the references to Robert's death as an inevitability and the threat of being put aside, it seems clear that the political background of the War of the Five Kings is deeply rooted not only in Robert's rebellion, but in the dysfunction that took root in the royal household following it. For his part, Ned Stark's strongest motivating factor was initially his loyalty to Robert, which Cersei shrewdly noted probably wouldn't have tipped the scales in favor of him accepting the handship when she told Jamie, I was certain Stark would refuse him. As we know, it was Lysa herself who killed Lord Arryn and wrote the letter implicating the Lannisters at Littlefinger's suggestion. And that brings us to the pair of royal councillors with their own agendas who were left largely to their own devices due to their king's lack of interest in the tedious business of administration. Yeah, regardless of marital discord and dysfunctional leadership, Varys was playing his game in King's Landing long before Stannis discovered the truth of Cersei's infidelity, or Jon Arryn's death, or Ned's arrival. Varys's long game was evidently to create a low-burning conflict so he could produce the boy Aegon and frame him as a savior to the realm in order that few would question his legitimacy and thus, many theorize, see the Blackfire on the Iron Throne at long last. But Varys's game was complicated by another player who had his own agenda in creating conflict and sowing chaos, Peter Baelish. What his agenda was all along is complex to say the least, but perhaps can be best boiled down to the phrase self-interest for now. In pursuit of his own self-interest, he seems to have not only planned John Arryn's death, but also played a role in bringing Cersei and Jaime's incest to light, and then actively worked to cause friction between Stark and Lannister. And in light of all that, we want to review some points we made in our Littlefinger and Renly analyses. There's a good case to be made that he was in collusion with Lord Renly early on. The first hint we get is when it's revealed that Renly is plotting with Loras Tyrell to have Robert set Cersei aside and marry Marjorie. As we've noted, Cersei's remarks to Jaime at Winterfell may hint that she had some knowledge or foreboding of the plot, and we think that Renly's plan could really only have originated in the knowledge of Cersei's treason and the illegitimacy of her children. As we've said, 
Renly may have harboured some hopes of being named Robert's heir if Cersei's children were disinherited. As far as Renly's knowledge of Cersei's treason goes, the trail, like Stannis's own knowledge of the incest and Liza Arryn's deathbed confessions about her husband's death, seems to lead directly back to Littlefinger, who also first pointed the finger of ownership of the cat's paws dagger at Tyrion Lannister, which led to Cat's arrest of Tyrion on the King's Road and ultimately the outbreak of open hostility between Stark and Lannister. And it may have even been Baelish who tipped off Jaime Lannister as to Ned's whereabouts on the night of the ambush in King's Landing, remembering that Ned was on a covert visit to a brothel arranged by none other than Littlefinger himself. Since all these roads seem to lead back to Littlefinger, it's very hard not to conclude that he was actively working to set Baratheon, Stark, Arryn, and Lannister at odds, and that he saw the value of drawing House Tyrell into the fray quite early on is hinted at in A Game of Thrones when he queried Sansa on why she would have sent Loras Tyrell to hunt down Gregor Clegane. Sansa's answer about heroes and monsters revealed much about her own personality, but Littlefinger's reply, those are not the reasons I'd have given, but... offers a hint that Baelish himself would have sacrificed Sir Loras to Sir Gregor in order to place the Tyrells in opposition to the Lannisters. Okay, now let's circle back to Varys. We've analysed what could be his endgame in the Blackfire episode, but let's review what was happening in King's Landing before the outbreak of hostilities. Perhaps the best glimpse of what Varys was up to comes to us through Arya's point of view. Yeah, Arya is exploring under the Red Keep and happens upon a secret meeting between Lord Varys and Illyrio Mopatis. Everything seems to be coming to a head just a little too quickly on the King's Landing side of the plot. Varys outlines it for his friend. This is no longer a game for two players, if ever it was. Stannis Baratheon and Lysa Arryn have fled beyond my reach, and the whispers say they are gathering swords around them. The Knight of Flowers writes Highgarden, urging his lord father to send his sister to court. The girl is a maid of fourteen, sweet and beautiful and tractable, and Lord Renly and Sir Loras intend that Robert should bed her, wed her, and make a new queen. Littlefinger. The gods only know what game Littlefinger is playing. Yet Lord Stark's the one who troubles my sleep. He has the bastard, he has the book, and soon enough he'll have the truth. And now his wife has abducted Tyrion Lannister thanks to Littlefinger's meddling. Lord Tywin will take that for an outrage, and Jaime has a queer affection for the imp. If the Lannisters move north, that will bring the Tullys in as well. Delay, you say? Make haste, I reply. Even the finest of jugglers cannot keep a hundred balls in the air forever. So Varys lays out exactly what was going on in the realm, and what the risks were in the game he was playing. Illyrio had been protesting that the Dothraki aren't ready to play their role in the plot, that Danny's pregnancy had caused a delay in the plan for them to invade Westeros with Viserys Targaryen. And so Varys brings the news of Danny's pregnancy to Robert in council as soon as the day after the clandestine meeting, 
and Robert orders Danny's assassination. Predictably, given the well-known past quarrel between Ned and Robert about the killing of children, this drove a wedge between the two. Ned gave up his office and planned to go back north. Yeah, and not only might this have delayed the Stark-Lannister conflict, but it would have left Robert vulnerable and unprotected. Of course, as much as he yearned only to return to the north and see to its defenses while safeguarding his family, Ned would ultimately prove too honorable to abandon his friend in the viper's nest that was King's Landing. In the meantime, Varys very nearly pulled off a plan that would have worked to his favor on several levels, delaying conflict and hastening the Dothraki invasion as he had schemed. Unfortunately, he reckoned once again without the intervention of Littlefinger. What's interesting is that one can see Peter Baelish's little fingers in a number of the turns of events that Varys notes to Illyrio. Stannis and Liza Arryn's departures, the Robert Marjorie plot, and the unravelling of Cersei's secrets by Ned Stark. And while Renly, as a Baratheon, may have been acting out of self-preservation, if he had some knowledge of Cersei plotting to rid herself of Robert, we think that a more in-character motivator would have been his own ambition, in which case those little fingerprints are all over Renly's path to kingship as well. Note this telling comment made by Lord Baelish to Ned Stark about the value of playing the Lannisters' game for a short while after Robert's death. Long enough to dispose of Lord Stannis. Then, should Joffrey prove troublesome, we can reveal his little secret and put Lord Renly on the throne. So, Littlefinger casually suggesting disposing of Stannis and that Renly could be king strikes us as very interesting, especially in light of the fact that he would later quickly volunteer himself as an emissary to the Tyrells in the wake of Renly's death, and as such, orchestrate the Joffrey-Marjorie marriage, and ultimately, the Purple Wedding. And for more on our views of the machinations of Peter Baelish, we're going to refer you back to our two-part episode on him, and now move on to the motivations of two of the more straightforward players in the lead-up to the war. The King's brothers are the ones giving Cersei sleepless nights, Lord Stannis in particular. His claim is the true one. He is known for his prowess as a battle commander, and he is utterly without mercy. There is no creature on earth half so terrifying as a truly just man. No one knows what Stannis has been doing on Dragonstone, but I will wager you that he's gathered more swords than seashells. So here is Cersei's nightmare. While her father and brother spend their power battling Starks and Tullys, Lord Stannis will land, proclaim himself king, and lop off her son's curly blonde head, and her own in the bargain. Though I truly believe she cares more about the boy. We've reviewed Stannis' military background and the fact that his knowledge of Cersei's infidelity to Robert may have originated with a suggestion from Littlefinger, and just as the power of that suggestion may have acted upon Renly's ambition, so it would have acted upon Stannis' sense of righteousness. 
In the absence of legitimate heirs for Robert, Stannis would be his brother's rightful heir, and we can just imagine his jaw-breaking tooth-grinding at the thought of Cersei's bastard and unpleasant child in the bargain, Joffrey, usurping that role. Right, it's nearly certain that the moment he became convinced of the truth of the allegation against Cersei, he would have seen it as his duty to bring to light and take his place as Robert's heir, the implications to Cersei, her children and the realm notwithstanding. As Varys would say to Ned, there is no creature on earth half so terrifying as a truly just man. And note he was commenting on Cersei's fears there. So, Stannis's motives are, as we said, very straightforward. Aside from the little bit of cloak and dagger hinted at in his discovery of the incest and the detective work with John Arryn in tracking down Robert's bastards, there's very little guile or subterfuge in Stannis's prosecution of his claim. That he withdrew to Dragonstone and gave no answer to ravens sent to him by the council and sent Davos on an apparently secret mission to the Stormlands in search of support, notwithstanding, his motives are clear, and once Robert was dead, he began styling himself king, more or less openly, and preparing his invasion of King's Landing. And Balon Greyjoy is another matter. His motivations are similarly straightforward, since we have the background of Greyjoy's rebellion, and Lord Balon's ambitions are plainly written in that history. Even the question of why now can be answered simply by pointing out the similarity to the rebellion of ten years previously. He would take advantage of a time of chaos in the realm to assert his kingship and re-establish the old way in the Iron Isles. When Theon arrived at Lordsport in A Clash of Kings, he sees what appears to be evidence that his father has called the Longships. A great number of longships, fifty or sixty at the least, stood out to sea or lay beached on the pebbled shore to the north. Some of the sails bore devices from the other islands. This will be a matter of weeks since the death of Ned Stark, and several months since the death of Robert Baratheon. Given the fact that over the next weeks, more and more ships arrived to join the host, we think it was fortuitous circumstance of the deaths of both of his old nemeses in short succession that stirred Lord Balon to action. As he would tell Theon in their first meeting, they are both dead. Stark and that Robert who broke my walls with his stones, I vowed I'd live to see them both in their graves, and I have. So, we certainly can't underestimate the power of vengeance here, and perhaps we get a glimpse of what's driving Balon when Theon refers to his relationship with Rob as brotherly. Not here, not in Pike, not in my hearing, you will not name him brother, this son of the man who put your true brothers to the sword, or have you forgotten Roderick and Maron, who were your own blood? While Theon thinks that in truth, Ned had killed neither of his brothers. It seemed like in his role as Robert's commander and as a lord who took Balon's last surviving son as warden hostage, Ned earned that resentment which would one day fuel Lord Balon's second rebellion. For make no mistake, as much as Theon would think that this was his hour, his plan, his glory, and in time his crown, 
the Ironborn involvement in the War of the Five Kings was planned and executed by Balon Greyjoy for Balon Greyjoy's own reasons. And now let's return to King's Landing and the Valyrian steel dagger that had been used by the cat's paw in the attempt on Bran's life at Winterfell. Littlefinger identified it as his own, which had been won by Tyrion Lannister at Joffrey's name day tourney some months ago. He also cleverly pointed out the lack of actual evidence tying Tyrion to the attempt on Bran's life, and advised Ned and Cat to forget it, knowing, of course, that they would not. But in a game where pawns don't always behave as the players wish them to, even Peter Baelish couldn't have predicted that on the road north, Catelyn would meet Tyrion Lannister on his way south at the inn at the crossroads. And since it's probable that it was in those very environs that Rhaegar Targaryen met Lyanna Stark when he disappeared with her, in an act that sparked Robert's Rebellion, the war that preceded and framed the current conflict in Westeros, there's a tremendous consonance in beginning our analysis in that location with another but very different seizure. So we'll be back in just a moment with our analysis of the opening chapters of the war, starting with Cat and Tyrion at the inn. This man came a guest into my house and there conspired to murder my son, a boy of seven. In the name of King Robert and the good lords you serve, I call upon you to seize him and help me return him to Winterfell to await the king's justice. Know ye, Radio Westeros listeners, that the thrice-cursed she-wolf, Catelyn Stark, has seized the son of our benevolent Lord Tywin. We call upon all the loyal subjects of Robert the King to join with House Lannister to show the realm what it means when someone insults the Lion of the West by daring to lay hands upon a member of his family. We shall bring fire and vengeance to the people of the Riverlands and the She-Wolf will be damned there forevermore. Join House Lannister and hear us roar. Catelyn Stark's seizure of Tyrion Lannister from the Inn at the Crossroads is widely seen as the spark that set off the conflagration that would consume much of Westeros during the first three novels of A Song of Ice and Fire. We're told that when messengers reached Casterly Rock from the Crossroads, Lord Tywin called his banners. But the speed with which he dispatched Gregor Clegane and his band of hooligans into the Riverlands surely indicates that Tywin might have been on a war footing already or at least anticipated being on one. Yeah, contrast Tywin's lightning strike into the Riverlands within days of receiving news of Tyrion with the weeks-long process of Robb Stark calling his banners and assembling the northern army that we see in A Game of Thrones. Also, recall that the Lannister army was apparently massing at the Golden Tooth in that same time frame and was ready for engagement as soon as Jaime arrived in King's Landing, likely days or weeks prior to Robert's death. 
That's not luck or coincidence. That's clearly planning. In which case, Kat's precipitous actions, while a convenient excuse for moving against the Riverlands, may have merely offered cover for Tywin's real objective, safeguarding Cersei and her children and securing the Iron Throne for his family. Certainly, if such a coup was planned in advance, there would be a need to ensure a corridor of access between the Westerlands and King's Landing, in which case the Riverlands would have been a soft target in service to the true objective. But regardless of Tywin's level of forethought, following Tyrion's arrest by Catelyn, things began happening very quickly. From the Crossroads Inn, riders raced for Casterly Rock, while Yorin of the Night's Watch made haste to King's Landing and made his report to Ned. Within 24 hours of Yorin's arrival, Jaime and his men would ambush Ned and his party in the streets of King's Landing, killing Jory Cassell and two others. And in the meantime, while Lord Tywin marshaled his forces at Casterly Rock, he commanded Gregor Clegane to lead a band of raiders, quote, mounted and mailed, armed with steel-tipped lances and longswords, with battle axes for the butchering, into the heart of the Riverlands in an attempt to draw Ned Stark himself into the field, where he could have been killed or captured and exchanged for Tyrion. The raiders rode war horses and wore plain armour with no banners or devices, but their leader was unmistakably Sir Gregor. That's right, even peasants who couldn't tell the difference between Robert Baratheon and Ned Stark could identify Gregor Clegane when they saw him. And the actions of this small strike force were later described in great detail to Ned Stark at King's Landing. One of the survivors from the town of Sherer related that they burnt us out, come riding in the dark up from the south and fired the fields and the houses alike, killing them as tried to stop them. They weren't no raiders, though, my lord. They had no mind to steal our stock, not these. They butchered my milk cow where she stood and left her for the flies and the crows. But that was only the beginning. At Shera and later at the town at the Mummer's Ford, from which there were no survivors, women were killed, raped and tortured, including, quote, Girls of six and seven years, raped, and babes still on the breast, cut in two while their mothers watched. Apprentice boy was ridden down in a field for sport while knights on horseback chased him and laughed, until Sir Gregor himself killed him with his lance. And from Wendish Town there were also no survivors, as Sir Raymond Derry would tell Ned, at Wendish Town, the people sought shelter in their holdfast, but the walls were timbered. The raiders piled straw against the wood and burnt them all alive. When the Wendish folk opened their gates to flee the fire, they shot them down with arrows as they came running out, even women with suckling babes. And apparently they had tried the same tactic at Shera, but there the holdfast was made of stone, so they abandoned the attempt and moved on to the Mummer's Ford, leaving the survivors of Shera to carry the tale to King's Landing. Unfortunately for Tywin's plan to lure Ned into the Riverlands, in King's Landing, Jaime had taken matters into his own hands and attacked Ned in the streets before fleeing the city himself. When Ned woke with a broken leg six days after the ambush, Alan told him, The Kingslayer is fled the city. 
The talk is he's ridden back to Casterly Rock to join his father. The story of how Lady Catelyn took the imp is on every lip. Yeah, so relations between Stark and Lannister are now at an all-time low, with Tywin actively plotting to remove Ned from the board. But in spite of his previous quarrel with Robert, his injury, Catelyn's actions, and Cersei's wrath over them, and the altercation with Jaime, within a matter of days, Ned was sitting the Iron Throne while Robert hunted in the Kingswood. And it was there that he received the party of petitioners from the holdfast of Sherer, accompanied by Sirs Carol Vance, Mark Piper, and Raymond Derry. When Edmure Tully learned that Jaime was raising an army, he had sent riders demanding that Lord Tywin proclaim his intent, but had no reply. Lords Vance and Piper were commanded to guard the pass below the Golden Tooth, with Edmure vowing that he would, quote, yield no foot of Tully land without first watering it with Lannister blood. The Darries had been summoned to Riverrun when Edmure called his banners. But following the raids by Clegane, Edmure sent men to every village in Holdfast within a day's ride of the border. Ned would think this tactic unwise, wondering if Tywin's intention was to bleed off Riverrun's strength, and thinking his wife's brother was young and more gallant than wise. He would try to hold every inch of his soil to defend every man, woman, and child who named him Lord, and Tywin Lannister was shrewd enough to know that. While Edmure was eager to take vengeance on Clegane for his atrocities, Lord Hoster ordered him to send emissaries to the king to beg Robert's approval before striking. In this, Ned was thankful for his father-in-law's wisdom, as he was sure that since Tywin had taken care that Gregor and his band rode under cover of knights with no banners to show their identity, Should the Tullys strike back, the Lannisters would insist that they were the aggressors. And as Ned thought, the gods only knew what Robert would believe. But Ned was easily convinced that the raiders were Lannister men, though, thinking the West had been a tinderbox since Catelyn had seized Tyrion Lannister. Both Riverrun and Casterly Rock had called their banners, and armies were massing in the pass below the Golden Tooth. It had only been a matter of time until the blood began to flow. The sole question that remained was how best to staunch the wound. Add to that, the fact the raiders were clearly warriors and well-outfitted, which, in spite of them displaying no identifying banners, was enough to indicate they were more than just casual outlaws. Their objective was terror rather than gain, and the description of their leader was enough to close the case for Ned. The one who led him, he was armoured like the rest, but there was no mistaking him all the same. It was the size of him, my lord. Those as says the giants are dead never saw this one, I swear. Big as an ox he was, and a voice like stone breaking. So, Ned made the fateful decision to send Lord Beric Dondarrion with a hundred men to bring the king's justice to Gregor Clegane. Ostensibly a matter of justice, it was bound to place House Stark even more firmly in opposition to House Lannister than it already was, and would have been enough to stoke the conflict, even had Robert survived his hunting trip. Of course, it appears that Tywin had also hoped that it would be a decisive move to neutralize the Starks, but he had reckoned without his own son's rash behavior. 
As it was, the ground was now laid for the rapid acceleration of hostilities. In the name of Robert of the House Baratheon, the first of his name, King of the Andals and the Roinar, and the First Men, Lord of the Seven Kingdoms and Protector of the Realm, by the word of Eddard of the House Stark, his hand, I charge you to ride to the Westlands with all haste to cross the Red Fork of the Trident under the King's flag and there bring the King's justice to the false knight Gregor Clegane and to all those who shared in his crimes. So, to compound matters, within a matter of days, Ned warned Cersei, in a fit of mercy, of his intention to tell Robert about her incestuous affair with Jamie. Just three days later, Robert would return from his hunt, mortally wounded after a wine-soaked encounter with an angry boar. While in Varys' words, it was not wine that killed the king, it was your mercy, we have to wonder just a little bit about the timeline. Since, according to the narrative, only three days passed between Ned warning Cersei and Robert's return, and Pycelle notes that it took two days for Robert to get to the Red Keep following his injury, this leaves all of one day for Cersei to send a message to Lancel, or someone else in the hunting party, that would ensure Robert's swift death. What's interesting is that there's no indication she did so. Lancel himself tells Varys that Cersei gave him the wineskin and told him it was the king's favourite vintage, indicating a conversation that took place prior to their departure. Are we making too much of the timeline? Or was Varys exaggerating to gain Ned's cooperation? And is this fact further evidence that Robert's death was carefully premeditated? We'll leave that little mystery for you listeners to decide. In the meantime, Rob at Winterfell had received messages from his mother with Ned's instructions regarding defensive fortifications, and a message from Alan in King's Landing about Ned's altercation with Jamie Lannister and his injury. And while Rob began to prepare the defenses of the North and debated calling the banners, he received another message, this time from Sansa, bearing the news of Robert's death and his father's arrest. And since we covered the Northern Muster and March South in the Rob episode, we'll leave the North for now and return to the Riverlands, where, around the time of Robert's death, Beric and his hundred men had arrived at the Mummer's Ford, where Gregor Clegane was lying in wait. As Beric's men crossed, Clegane's men fell on them from the front and the rear. Raymond Darry, Gladden Wilde, Lord Mallory, 14 of the 20 Winterfell men Ned had sent and around 60 others were killed in the attack. In the chaos, Alan of Winterfell was able to restore order in the ranks while Thoros rallied the horse. Forty men cut their way free, including a gravely wounded Beric Dondarrion, whose life was apparently saved first by his squire, Lord Edric Dane, who guarded his fallen master, and then by the ministrations of Thoros of Mir. However, such a small group was powerless to stand against Lord Tywin's host of 20,000 men, which now crossed the Red Fork and swept into the Riverlands in a campaign of destruction which must have been carefully synchronized with Robert's death in King's Landing, and answered Edmure Tully's inquiry as to Tywin's intentions 
in a most decisive way. All hail his grace, Joffrey of the houses Baratheon and Lannister, the first of his name, King of the Andals, the Roinar, and the First Men, and Lord of the Seven Kingdoms. All hail his Lady Mother, Cersei of House Lannister, Queen Regent, Light of the West, and Protector of the Realm. As we know, in King's Landing following Robert's death, Cersei acted quickly to cement her son's position as Robert's heir, seizing Ned Stark, who, with the knowledge of her children's parentage, had written to Robert's brother Stannis, urging him to sail for King's Landing to make his own claim. At the same time, Varys manipulated Joffrey and Cersei into firing Sir Barristan Selmy, a competent and experienced military man, from the Kingsguard, leaving the Lannister camp in King's Landing relatively rudderless. And while Stannis never received Ned's letter, that didn't stop him from brooding on his knowledge of Cersei's incest and her children's bastardy, and his own claim as Robert's heir, as he sat at Dragonstone, awaiting news from Davos Seaworth's secret mission to the Stormlands seeking support. And while no one in the rival camp seemed to know exactly what Stannis was up to in the months following Robert's death, it would turn out he was raising an army that, while it may have amounted to only around 5,000 men, was supplemented by a navy that included most of the royal fleet and would soon be swelled by the arrival of cell sails from across the narrow sea. And back in the Riverlands, that Robert's death was quite recent is evident in the fact that Beric's group initially expected the king himself to march west to crush Tywin's rebellion. By the time the truth of the matter became known, Jaime Lannister had led yet another army of 15,000 against the forces of Lords Vance and Piper at the Golden Tooth. Lord Vance was killed, while Piper retreated to join Edmure and the other river lords who had come to Riverrun at Edmure's call. And now the group with Beric and the river lords with Edmure were suddenly deemed outlaws and rebels for the crime of protecting their own lands and small folk. Thus was the Brotherhood Without Banners born. While Jaime Lannister advanced on Riverrun and Tywin continued his campaign of destruction in the Riverlands. And at Riverrun, as Ned had feared, Edmure Tully faced Jamie's 15,000 with an army diminished by the men he had sent to guard the Golden Tooth and the other outposts along his border. Lord Frey had not deigned to join him with his levy of 4,000 men either, so Edmure was almost certainly outnumbered. In the battle that took place under the walls of Riverrun, Edmure and many of his knights were captured, while Lord Tytos Blackwood managed to rally the survivors for a retreat into the castle where Jaime held them besieged. Meanwhile, advancing from the Red Fork towards the Ruby Ford, and with Tytos Blackwood besieged at Riverrun, Tywin easily seized Raventree Hall and Harrenhal, which was surrendered by Lady Shella Went for lack of men to defend it. Darry fell to the Lannisters as well, and at some point, Lyons sacked Maidenpool. Gregor Clegane burned Pink Maiden and Stonehenge and its surrounding fields, and also raped Lord Bracken's daughter. 
And it was at the Inn at the Crossroads that Tyrion Lannister rejoined the action after being reluctantly released by Lysa Tully and descending from the Mountains of the Moon with his new allies, the Mountain Clansmen, in tow. There he found his father's army encamped amidst a countryside that had obviously seen fighting, waiting for news from north, south, and west. Tyrion learned that Robert had died and Joffrey and Cersei held King's Landing, while Jaime held the field at Riverrun following his decisive victories at the Golden Tooth and outside the Tully stronghold, while Tywin himself had put the Lords of the Trident to rout. But there are a few flies in the ointment of Tywin's good news, starting with Jason Malister at Seaguard and Walder Frey at the Twins, both of whom remained free and with their full levies. Mark Piper and Carol Vance, who missed the battle at the Golden Tooth due to their mission to King's Landing, were now raiding Lannister supply lines and their lands across the Red Fork. Beric Dondarrion and Thoros of Mir were making a nuisance of themselves by harassing Tywin's foragers, and Rob Stark was sitting at Moat Caelin with the army of the North. And it was at Moat Caelin that Catelyn Stark joined her son along with Wyman Manderley's sons and Levy and her uncle Brynden Blackfish Tully. Rob's army at this point was over 18,000 strong, and after his mother joined him, he made the decision to break his army in two and take a small force west to relieve Edmure, while giving Roose Bolt in the command of the bulk of his army to act as bait to draw Tywin north along the east bank of the Green Fork to prevent him from being able to rush west to relieve Jaime. When Lord Tywin gets word that we've come south, he'll march to engage our main host, leaving our riders free to hurry down the west bank to River Run. It was a plan that, as we pointed out in our first Rob episode, depended on the cooperation of Walder Frey. After Cat had negotiated Rob's marriage, and Arya's too, to obtain that cooperation, Lord Walder's men were ultimately added to Rob's army, and, after leaving Lord Helmon Talhart with a small detachment to reinforce the Frey garrison, Rob took around nine-tenths of his horse cross-country towards Riverrun, joining up with Jason Malister along the way. The rest, a force of some 17,000, mostly men-at-arms, pikes, and archers, would march south to face Lord Tywin. And it's back to Tyrion's point of view, where the news arrives that the Stark host is marching south. It says, Lord Tywin Lannister did not smile. Lord Tywin never smiled, but Tyrion had learned to read his father's pleasure all the same, and it was there on his face. So, the wolfling is leaving his den to play among the lions, he said in a voice of quiet satisfaction. Splendid, return to Sir Adam and tell him to fall back. He is not to engage the Northerners until we arrive, but I want him to harass their flanks and draw them farther south. And while Kevin worries that their position at the ford might be better suited to let the Northerners, quote, break themselves against us, Tywin insists, The boy may hang back or lose his courage when he sees our numbers. The sooner the Starks are broken, the sooner I shall be free to deal with Stannis Baratheon. 
Tell the drummers to beat assembly and send word to Jamie that I am marching against Rob Stark. So there's the first instance of Tywin underestimating Rob there. And while Stannis would definitely seem at first glance to be the true threat in the hostilities that were breaking out, in hindsight, at the very least, that message to Jamie may have led to Jamie being complacent about the risks of anyone trying to break his siege. The question of whether Tywin was guilty of hubris, or at least haste, or perhaps both, is something we'll leave for you listeners to decide. And before leading his cavalry into the West, Rob had discussed the choice of Roos Bolton as commander with his mother. Roos's brand of cold cunning, Catelyn had told Rob, was best suited to the task of luring Tywin north. Having acknowledged the improbability of catching Tywin Lannister, quote, with his breeches down, the plan centered on getting Tywin to march as far north as possible, cutting off any westerly route to relieve Jaime and prolonging any retreat. While Rob's plan was indeed to take Jaime by surprise, the feint by Roos was designed merely to keep Tywin away from the river road and river run as long as possible. Yeah, once Tywin learned the Stark host was moving south, and he obligingly made the call to march north to meet them, it made the most sense for Roos to march his army south at a leisurely pace, drawing Tywin as far north as possible and occupying as much time as possible while Rob raced towards Jaime and Riverrun. And yet that's not what Roos did, is it? Instead, he stole a march on the Lannister army and arrived in battle range a full day earlier than Tywin expected them. As Tyrion thought, the Northerners would be exhausted after their long, sleepless march. Tyrion wondered what the boy had been thinking. Did he think to take them unawares while they slept? Small chance of that. Whatever else might be said of him, Tywin Lannister was no man's fool. Right, so this begs the question... Was there a strategic reason for Roos's decision? It's clear he couldn't have hoped to surprise Tywin. In fact, Roos did exactly what Tywin hoped for when he commanded Adam Marbrand to draw the Northerners further south. And then, once he accomplished his forced march, he made no effort to bear down on the Lannister army and take them unawares. He simply stopped. So... Many fans have wondered if this is evidence of Roos's early subversive action to subtly weaken the northern host by sacrificing Stark loyalists. That's right, and this is something there's been discussion on for years, going back to when Roos's perfidy was first revealed in A Storm of Swords. And we think there's no better answer to the question of what Roos had in mind with that decision than these words from George himself. Lord Bolton may well have all sorts of things in mind. Whether or not he would act on any of those thoughts is another matter. Roos is the sort of fellow who keeps his thoughts to himself. And the best sword is one that cuts both ways, he might tell you. Take the battle of the Green Fork. Had his night march taken Lord Tywin unawares and won the battle, he would have smashed the Lannisters and become the hero of the hour. While if it failed, well, you see what happened. The only way he could lose there would be if he were captured or slain himself, 
and he did his best to minimise the chances of that. So the very cunning Lord Bolton perhaps made a gamble which he knew he couldn't lose. Since he himself was apparently safe in the reserve, like his counterpart Lord Tywin, the decimation of a large number of northern troops was a risk worth taking. While we've seen some pretty convincing arguments that Roos had nefarious intentions even at this early stage, we can't rule out the possibility that there was some other factor that influenced him and wonder if the key here is Roos's pension for playing both sides of the fence. Yeah, as we pointed out in our Rob analysis, Roos has that much in common with Walder Frey. So, whether he was actively seeking to weaken Rob's army, perhaps playing for a time when House Bolton could gain an upper hand in the age-old rivalry with the Starks, or whether he merely took an unacceptable risk, the outcome was much the same. The Stark losses were heavy at the Green Fork, forcing a retreat back to the environs of the Neck, while having achieved victory, Tywin turned and marched back south as soon as he received intelligence from northern prisoners that Rob had split off across country. Well, with their slightly larger army and far superior cavalry, the Lannister victory at the Green Fork was almost assured. Tywin placed his van, all mounted and under the command of Gregor Clegane and comprised of the most undisciplined members of the army, including Tyrion's mounting clansmen, on the left up against the river, in the hopes that Rob Stark, who Tywin assumed to be green and lacking in strategic knowledge, would rush in where he perceived weaknesses, at which point Sir Kevin would charge in from the centre and flank the Northmen, driving them into the river while Tywin brought up the reserve. And leaving aside the fact that Tywin planned to more or less sacrifice the battle that contained his son Tyrion, it perhaps came as a surprise to him when his left failed to break, instead driving the Stark lines back, ultimately with the aid of Kevin's center battle. When Tywin committed the reserves, the northern army was forced to retreat back to the causeway, and while Tyrion wondered if their forced march the night before had contributed to the northerners breaking sooner, Tywin attributed the success of his van to, quote, the Stark boy proving more cautious than I expected for one of his years. And the true reason for the northern commander's caution soon became clear when Sir Adam Marbrand brought news of the captives taken in the victory. My liege, we have taken some of their commanders, Lord Kerwin, Sir Wireless Manderley, Harry and Carstark, four phrase. Lord Hornwood is dead and I fear Roose Bolton has escaped us. The Stark boy was not with them, my lord. They say he crossed at the Twins with a great part of his horse, riding hard for Riverrun. And we don't actually get a description of Tywin's reaction to this news, but Tyrion's thoughts are typically sharp. A green boy, Tyrion remembered, more like to be brave than wise. He would have laughed if it hadn't hurt so much. Our position is worse than you know. It would seem we have a new king. 
So, while this drama was playing out in the Riverlands, at Highgarden, Renly Baratheon took the hand of Marjorie Tyrell in marriage and claimed the crown for himself, while the bride's father and brothers bent the knee to him and swore him their swords. Not only does Renly's claim illuminate why the Lords Swan and Tarth and the formidable Courtney Penrose, among other Stormlanders, all refused to pledge to Stannis when Davos Seaworth met with them, his marriage meant that the might of the Reach had joined with the Stormlands in opposition to the might of the Westerlands, and that should have proved to be a formidable matchup indeed. As it is, Rob's cross-country race towards Riverrun was paying off. When they left the twins, Katz had thought, for good or ill, her son had thrown the dice. And after he joined up with Jason Malister and his men along the way, it seemed everything was going his way. Bored with the siege and overconfident following his easy victories, Jamie had begun leading parties afield to attack the surviving river lords in their keeps. Thinking the northern army safely on the King's Road about to engage his father, Jamie would have felt he had nothing to fear from the scattered and bloodied river lords who remained in the region. And one key factor was the aforementioned raids by Mark Piper, who had become a nuisance to Jamie as well as Tywin. As Rob approached Riverrun from the north, screened by the efforts of Brynden Tully in killing any Lannister outriders that they came across, Mark Piper swung around and joined his small force with Rob's. Rob then sent the Blackfish out with a small band wearing Tully colors to harass Jamie to draw him on in pursuit of what he would expect to be a small raiding party. The Blackfish dispensed with Jamie's outriders, and without eyes or intelligence, Jamie rashly struck out at the harassers, no doubt thinking he was dealing with a force many times smaller than his own under the leadership of someone like Mark Piper. Unaware of the danger, Jamie led his small force about one quarter to one third the size of the Stark Tully force into a forested valley in pursuit of Brynden Tully. And as soon as all of his men were in the valley, Mage Mormont sounded the signal and swept around to close the escape to the south. Meanwhile, Rob and the Freys rode down from the western slope and the Malisters and Umbers from the east. Tully turned and, joined by Rickard Karstark from the north, met Jamie head-on. In such a trap, needless to say, Jamie's force was decimated, all killed or captured. According to Theon, the losses were ten to one in favour of Rob's army, a matter of a hundred or two, no more, although significantly Rob lost three of his personal guard in the persons of Darren Hornwood and Eddard and Torren Karstark, who protected him from Jamie's last-ditch effort to engage Rob in single combat. And probably the most significant achievement of the victory was the captives. A hundred knights and a dozen western lords and Lannister kin and Jamie Lannister himself were taken. While Riverrun remained besieged for the time being, Rob and Catelyn had achieved one of the things they had discussed at Moat Caelan. Our best hope, our only true hope, is that you can defeat the foe in the field. If you should chance to take Lord Tywin or the Kingslayer captive, why then a trade might very well be possible. 
but that is not the heart of it. So long as you have power enough that they must fear you, Ned and your sister should be safe. And so it must have seemed to them, for Cat allowed that even Cersei was, quote, wise enough to know that she may need Ned and the girls to make her peace, should the fighting go against her. And that's exactly what Cersei had planned, in order to make short work of the Stark problem and free up her father and brother to protect Joffrey from Robert's brothers, whom she believed to be the real threat. As Cersei would later recall, Joff was supposed to spare Ned's life and send him to the Wall. Stark's eldest son would have followed him as Lord of Winterfell, but Sansa would have stayed at court, a hostage. Varys and Littlefinger had worked out the terms, and Ned Stark had swallowed his precious honour and confessed his treason to save his daughter's empty little head. But Cersei wasn't in full control of things in King's Landing, and the petulant and arrogant boy king had a taste for violence and vengeance, and possibly a devious counsellor whispering in his ear. Ned's execution all but assured that there would be no swift conclusion to the hostilities in the Riverlands. While Cersei would later think that was not supposed to happen, Varys would challenge Tyrion with the question, Who truly killed Eddard Stark, do you think? Joffrey, who gave the command? Sir Illyn Payne, who swung the sword? Or another? Well, the implication seems to be that Littlefinger was involved. And for that discussion, we'll again point back to our two-part Littlefinger analysis. Whoever was ultimately responsible for Ned's death and Jamie's capture, happening nearly simultaneously, tilted the balance of power in the Riverlands Theatre. Yeah, when Joffrey stood on the steps of the Great Sept of Baelor in King's Landing and demanded Illyn Payne give him Ned Stark's head, everything Cersei and by extension Tywin may have planned went out the proverbial window. While Varys had noted this is no longer a game for two players months earlier, Joffrey's rash decision highlighted the weakness within the Lannister camp and opened the field for other players to strike. But for now, the struggle remained focused between the wolf and the lion. Immediately following Jaime's capture, Rob led his cavalry against what remained of the Lannister army encamped around Riverrun. Jamie had split his army into three parts in order to keep the siege. Sir Kevin Lannister described the lay of the land in Tyrion's POV after the battle. Riverrun is situated at the end of the point of land where the Tumblestone flows into the Red Fork of the Trident. The rivers form two sides of a triangle, and when danger threatens, the Tullys open their sluice gates upstream to create a wide moat on the third side, turning River Run into an island. The walls rise sheer from the water, and from their towers the defenders have a commanding view of the opposite shores for many leagues around. To cut off all the approaches, a besieger must needs place one camp north of the Tumblestone, one south of the Red Fork, and a third between the rivers, west of the moat. There is no other way. None. 
And so Rob once again split his own army into two parts, with the van under the command of his uncle Brynden attacking the camp on the north bank of the Tumblestone. When men from the camp between the rivers attempted to cross over to aid their fellows, Rob himself led a force out of the west against the middle camp. Although a defense was attempted, Lord Titus Blackwood led a sortie from the castle and took them from the rear, after which the Tully prisoners were freed while the Umbers destroyed the Lannister siege engines. With the leaders of the Westermen largely now captives in the Northern Army, the attack on the Northern and Western camps soon turned into a rout. Lord Andros Brax drowned trying to cross the Tumblestone on a raft to relieve the northernmost camp. Ultimately, Jamie's entire army was decimated with exception of those in the southern camp, 4,000 men under the command of Sir Forley Prester, who were able to retreat in good order towards the Westerlands, less a Tyroshi sellsword who turned his cloak and took his men over to Rob. And the courier who brought news to Tywin many days later would explain how the attack unfolded, telling the war council, Sir Jamie had gone out to deal with Mark Piper's raiders the night before. Well, with what we thought was them, we were told the Star Coast was east of the Green Fork, marching south. And there you have it. Rob's initial deception came home to roost in more ways than one, with the earlier message from Tywin directly contributing to Jamie's complacency and capture, and the defeat of his army, nearly half of Tywin's committed troops in the Riverlands. But following the victory, and before too much celebrating could take place, news arrived of Ned's execution. Rob was now the Lord of Winterfell in truth, and Cat prepared to enter her childhood home and be reunited with her brother and her dying father as a widow. And Rob's first order of business inside River Run was to call a council. Word had arrived from the south of Renly Baratheon's claim to the throne. Cat's surprised comment, Renly? I had thought, surely it would be Lord Stannis is indicative of the fact that at that moment, Stannis was still isolating himself on Dragonstone, biding his time and making Cersei very, very nervous. And besides the northern lords who had accompanied Rob to Riverrun, Theon Greyjoy, Lords Umber and Karstark, Mage Mormont and Galbert Glover, many of the lords of the Trident had converged on Riverrun following the victory. In addition to Edmure and Brynden Tully, Titus Blackwood and numerous Freys, Carol Vance, Mark Piper, Jonas Bracken and the young heir to Darry now joined the council. The discussion raged for hours with arguments made for supporting Renly or Stannis or suing for peace. Throughout it all, Rob remained firm in his conviction that Renly could not be the king Using words that sounded very like his father's, he reminded the gathering that Stannis came before Renly, and Joffrey and his brother Tommen came before Stannis. No matter how evil and faithless Joffrey was, that did not make Renly the king. The talk then turned to a debate between peace and vengeance. Rob? If that sword could bring him back, I should never let you sheathe it until Ned stood at my side once more. 
but he is gone, and a hundred whispering woods will not change that. Ned is gone, and Darren Hornwood, and Lord Carstark's valiant sons, and many other good men besides, and none of them will return to us. Must we have more deaths still? Perhaps I do not understand tactics and strategy, but I understand futility. We went to war when Lannister armies were ravaging the Riverlands, and Ned was a prisoner, falsely accused of treason. We fought to defend ourselves, and to win my lord's freedom. Well, the one is done, and the other forever beyond our reach. I will mourn for Ned until the end of my days, but I must think of the living. I want my daughters back, and the queen holds them still. If I must trade our four Lannisters for their two Starks, I will call that a bargain and thank the gods. I want you safe, Rob, ruling at Winterfell from your father's seat. I want you to live your life, to kiss a girl and wed a woman and father a son. I want to write an end to this. I want to go home, my lords, and weep for my husband. And after Catelyn's impassioned plea for peace, which was met with a recitation of all the claims of vengeance against the Lannisters the assembled council had, Great John Umber stood up and demanded the floor. Dismissing Renly and Stannis and Joffrey as southerners unfit to rule the north, and reminding the assembled company that it was the Targaryens the Starks had knelt to, he spoke the words that changed the course of events in the Riverlands and beyond. Why shouldn't we rule ourselves again? It was the dragons we married, and the dragons are all dead. There sits the only king I mean to bow my knee to, my lords. The King in the North! And with that, the Lords of the North and the Riverlands bent their knees to Rob, and the realm had three kings, with a fourth likely claimant in Stannis on Dragonstone, and the fifth, an outlier, soon to be named. And when we return in our next episode, we'll take up the action with the Lannisters in King's Landing, before covering the Brothers Baratheon, the Ironborn, and Rob's campaigns in the Riverlands and the West, the climactic Battle of the Blackwater, and beyond. Now there were three kings in the land, and war raged beyond the trident, while the city filled with desperate men. Thanks so much for joining us today. We hope you've enjoyed our first chapter on the War of the Five Kings. This massive topic has occupied much of this year for us so far, and we're not finished yet. Look for parts two and three to come with additional related topics also in the works. And now, as usual, it's time for us to give credit where credit is due. Thanks, as always, to George R.R. R. Martin for the rich tapestry of Westeros and to Kevin MacLeod for allowing us to use his music in our production. And, as usual, we'll end today with thanks to our patrons from the Valyrian Steel and Castle Steel levels. Consider being a patron of the podcast and you could be hearing your name here, too. Heartfelt thanks to I Am Epic, Eliana Targaryen, Buxton, Joe, Chris K, June, Matt, John H., Sir Bobby the Knight, thrower of the Valyrian steel chair, 
Melitza, Cinder of the Citadel, JM, Demetrios, Joy B, Maltude, Yorlan, AU Packmule, Painkiller Jane, Marge of the Mage, Lady of the Frostfangs, Alexis, Amber, Jessica, Kurt, Rusted Revolver, Lady Steelwind, Sharon of Littlefield, William James, the Mad Maester of Castle Black, Oxheart, Boss, Arrow Sir Kobe of House Stonesmith, Words are Wind, Deeds are Stone, Joy, Mark Joseph, The Snow in Winterfell, Josh, Whitney, Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Black Runes, Sworn Alesmith to House Stark, Grandmaster of the Zithamancer's Guild and Keeper of the Buzz, and Lady Dialers of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. And thanks as well to... Jim McGeehan of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire, AJ, Arian, Chris V, Direwolf, Anzonio, Greg, Brendan B. Fish of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire, John of House Dane, Liz, Marilyn, Princess Sandico of the Summer Isles, Rebea, Lady of the Waves, Steve, Early Bird Gets After It, Zainab, James B., Curveball, Matt M., Jeff Gnarly the Long Snapper, Septa Smashley, Ash E, Rebecca Q, Jean, Megan, George, Yvonne, Sakari Sand, Black Eyed Lily, Manon Paget, Rachel, Felix, Brian, Matt L, Michael, James, Rachel Mary, Jose, Michael M, Jason, Tanner, Aiden, Jennifer, David Damshorts of the Farallon Islands, Mama J, Mother to Cripples, Bastards and Broken Ones, Fabian Flowers, the Bastard of Green Shield, Quincy, Amber, Dimitri, Aileen, Comedian Watcher, Ellie, Pat, Sir Ryan Goodwin, Knight of the Queen's Guard, and Lord Commander Daenerys Flint. As always, let us know if I've pronounced any of your names wrong, if you have a nickname you'd prefer to use, or if you feel we've left anything out. Visit RadioWesteros.com for quick access to all our podcasts. You can also find a link to our Patreon campaign donate via paypal and comment on our content there or find us on youtube and of course you can connect with us via twitter facebook google plus or tumblr thanks again for joining us we'll see you soon with more on the war of the five kings bye for now